0: How do you figure out your fab bid during the deadline rush? We'll talk about that and more with Ray Murphy, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 28th. It's show number 30 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, about fabbing at the deadline, dueling emotions in daily fantasy, a Baseball HQ staff poll on player facts and flukes, and a spotlight on Odebel Herrera. We'll also have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at Lucas Duda leaving the Mets, Anthony Swarzak joining the Brewers, Eduardo Nunez leaving the Giants, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Lucas Duda going to Tampa, Anthony Swarzak leaving the White Sox, Eduardo Nunez going to Boston, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon has an updated profile of the Mets shortstop prospect Ahmed Rosario. In our playing time commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at trade deadline effects on San Diego's bullpen and Arizona's batting order. In our frequent flyers comment, analyst Alex Becky looks at Arizona's second baseman Kevin Medrano and starting pitcher Anthony Banda. In our Weekend Pitcher Matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at James Paxton, Jacob DeGrom, and the other pitchers matching up this weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be giving you a Baseball HQ pop quiz. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's deadline weekend. Well, sort of. Anyway, we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League News, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Thank you, Patrick. It's going to be exciting
0: or I guess we should say almost at the trading deadline because there is going to be an issue with the fact that some of the trades will happen on the weekend, but the deadline's actually Monday, so there's a bit of concern amongst uh, fantasy owners, I'm sure, to, to try to figure out should they make their move this week on whatever happens, or should they hold off till the actual deadline and see if something better comes along?
2: Yeah, I think a definite, definite concern, depending on your fantasy league rules and how all that operates, but uh, there's a lot of speculation out there, and as we know, not all of that will happen but there've already been some big uh, some big names drop and there're going to be a few more i think
0: and before we get to those uh, nick you played uh, your league's rules to take advantage of a possible trade scenario that hasn't happened yet might not happen yet but if it does you've put yourself in a position to take advantage explain what what you did
2: well you know i actually I haven't done it yet i'm trying to, to to think about if it's something i want to do but the question becomes in an nl only league our uh, our waiver claims are not due are due on Sunday. Trade deadline is Monday. So the question becomes something like this. You hear that Alex Verdugo is likely to go for for um Hugh Darvish, And you Darvish in, in our league if Yu Darvish comes over, the guy who's got Alex Verdugo gets him. So do you go up and pick up Alex Verdugo this weekend in the anticipation that you Darvish may come over on Monday? An interesting kind of thing to think about at least
0: What's the downside?
2: There isn't. I don't think there is a downside on this one because Alex Verdugo is a good ball player and we've got a reserve list and you just tuck him on there and use him next year when the Dodgers finally call him up and he and he becomes a very fine outfielder. So I, I don't see a downside.
0: And is the mechanism a pure waiver claim type deal where you lose the waiver claim and drop to the bottom of the list or is it a fab type thing?
2: Uh, no, it's entirely a, a thing based upon where you are in the standings by week. So the person who's in last place gets the first claim, etc., all the way back up to the to whoever's leading that particular week.
0: And the next week, the guy who's last place still picks first? That's right. Even if he already just picked? Okay. That's right, yeah. yeah. So let's start talking about some of these big names that have been traded. Uh, the first one, San Francisco's started their rebuilding, I guess. They traded Eduardo Nunez, the third baseman, who was such a surprise. When he came over from Minnesota, he's back in the American League with Boston. Rob Carroll covered the story in Playing Time today. So let's start with what happens to the Giants lineup.
2: Uh, you know, there are lots of things that could drop here for the Giants, and so we'd have to wait and see what they do between now and the, uh, and the deadline. Um, Nunez was the team's primary third baseman. He was one of many left fielders. He also plays shortstop. There are lots of places that, that Boston could plug him in. Uh, the question becomes, though, what, who replaces him at third base in San Francisco? And the most likely candidate that's being kicked around out there is a the guy they just signed, and that's Pablo Sandoval, who they, they picked up a, a few weeks ago, and he's been in the minor leagues. Uh, Sandoval has been limited to 54 games between the minors and majors this year, uh, playing at single A and triple A since he, he got signed. He's three for 15. So uh, not a real um, appetizing, I think, pick. Not someone I would want on my roster as he heads to San Francisco. Uh, he may be fast-tracked to the Bay Area simply because they need someone to play third base. Um, other possibilities, Connor Gillaspie, Kelby Tomlinson, uh, not too much fantasy excitement there. Uh, Gillespie's season has been derailed by back injuries, only 69 at bats, and he hasn't even gotten untracked against right-handers, a 271 slugging against right-handers, and that's actually kept him employed for the past five years, so not much going on there. Uh, Tomlinson has a 170 speed and has a handful of stolen bases, but, uh, has no power in 19px, so not exactly what you want at the, um, at the trade deadline, um, Ryder Jones and Jaquan uh, Huang, a phone call away from AAA San Um they're not very good. Seven for 57 combined. Uh, three RBIs in their first taste of Major League action. So there's just not a whole lot there. My guess is they will go to Sandoval as the name, at least, and something they can kind of hand to their fans after getting rid of Nunez. But uh, I'm not picking him up.
0: And briefly, what about the players, the prospects, San Francisco got back from Boston in this deal?
2: They got back two right-handed pitchers. Sean Anderson and Gregory Santos both are several years away. So, uh, I, you know, I, this looks like a a kind of a, a free agent kind of dump to me.
0: Yeah, it looks like that to me, too. Uh, the Mets traded Lucas Duda. This came as something of a surprise. He goes out of the National League over to Tampa. What happens to the playing time in New York?
2: Well, you know, that that's really confusing at this point because the Mets have been sending all kinds of uh, kinds of uh, strange signals. They's clear, they now have a very clear path to promoting Dominic Smith, the former first-round pick, a guy who's been tearing it up at AAA, but they haven't done that. Uh, and uh, Ahmed Rosario is uh, supposedly going to arrive first, and that's not going to happen until after the trade deadline. Uh, my guess is there are, there are other, other things going to happen in New York that will, uh, will considerably mix things around for them. Uh, Jay Bruce played first base on Thursday night, but uh, and he could be an option, but he could also be dealt. So if Jay Bruce doesn't stay at first base, there could be other things happening. Um, the New York Post said the first base will be a committee with uh, Bruce, uh, Wilmer Flores, maybe Neil Walker, coming back from the DL.
0: So you think this signifies the start of the big rebuild for the Mets. So uh, what goes on with them getting uh, back Drew Smith?
2: Uh, not a top prospect on most lists, but does have a 97-mile-an-hour fastball and a power curve could be a key bullpen arm in the future and uh, the Mets have done pretty well with pitching so there may be some ideas of developing Drew Smith here.
0: Not any immediate help though uh, you mentioned Jay Bruce could be dealt before the deadline I've been reading that myself I'm sure all of us have but who else might be on the way out?
2: Rumors are looking at Bruce at Drew uh, Ball Cabrera at Curtis Granderson at Addison Reed all of those names are popping up uh, it doesn't mean that anything will happen. As, as you know, there's often uh, a lot of names thrown out there and frequently uh, not as much happens as has already happened this year.
0: Yeah, usually when the hot stove gets cooking, there's more smoke than fire, that's for sure. Uh, The Philadelphia Phillies were rumored to be uh, offering relief pitcher Pat Neshek around the league, uh, and certainly it it happened. He got traded to Colorado. He stays in the National League on Wednesday. He got uh, traded for infielder Jose Gomez and a couple of right-handers, J.D. Hammer, got to love that name, and Alejandro Requena. Rob Carroll again on the story. What are the playing time effects here?
2: Well, Neshek is now reunited with manager Bud Black, and uh, under much better circumstances than when they were together in San Diego in two thousand eleven. Uh, Neshek is arguably having uh, his best season. Um, the Rockies have maintained their lead for a wild card spot in spite of playing sub five hundred ball in July, and part of the problem has been has been in the uh, not in the bullpen, not at the back end, but in that in that setup spot. Uh, Neshek has a career best ten uh, DOM, uh, walking only five guys uh, against forty five strikeouts. And has thrown first pitch strikes seventy three percent of the time. So looks like a good guy to slot in to that uh to that setup spot in Colorado. Uh so expect him to join uh, left hander Jake McGee in setting up Greg Holland. Uh Adam Odovino has not has been very wild. Uh Odovino has walked twenty six batters in thirty six and he's pitched, uh and simply has not and lost uh, taken three losses. So has not been very good uh as a uh, as a setup reliever. Um with fewer than 40 innings pitched and uh, fewer innings pitched than appearances and no saves, is uh, not going to have a huge impact on the fantasy team. But he does have 10 holes and great skills. A 166 BPV, uh, certainly superior to a lot of alternatives who are out there at the moment.
0: Yeah, I like a guy like this uh, as a sneaky play for wins too because Colorado can really bash the ball and you can see a guy like uh, Nishak coming into the game in tie situations or down a run late and all of a sudden, you know, Nolan Arenado pokes a three-run homer and there's a, a vulture win for a guy late in the bullpen over there. Uh, well, just before we move on, Nick, Adam ottavino it wasn't that long ago, within the last year or two, that we were talking on this show about Adam Ottavino as a closer candidate. What happened to Adam Ottavino? He can't find the plate.
2: Yeah, you know you, don't know, you never know in a situation like this. Is there some kind of an injury that he's hiding? Is uh, there something gone wrong with him in terms of mechanics that the pitching coach can't figure out and can't fix? It's really hard to know, but the fact is the numbers simply aren't there, and he's not getting the ball over the plate. Uh, and that's certainly not a good thing if you're going to be a setup reliever.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him moved into some kind of mop-up type role at the rate he's going, because Colorado has aspirations to make the playoffs this year, and they're certainly pretty well positioned for that.
2: Yeah, they are. They are indeed. You know, the other thing about in fantasy leagues, though, if I were a Greg Holland owner, I'd be picking up uh, Neshek. Just, uh, there, there's enough of an injury history there, and uh, I would uh, would have Neshek as a handcuff.
0: What happens with the Philadelphia Phillies, meanwhile?
2: Uh, Joaquin Benoit and Hector Neris move up in the pecking order. Uh, they'll also call up a young pitcher as bullpen help this week, probably as early as Friday. Uh, none of the prospects in that regard are hugely interesting right now. Jose Gomez is a 20-year-old shortstop, hit three twenty-four with an eight eleven OPS in low A. Uh, right-hand uh, starting pitcher Alejandro Requina, 20-year-old with a 2.85 ERA in 19 starts, 97 strikeouts, 25 walks, but that's 117 innings pitched at low A. Uh, J.D. Hammer, that name that uh, that is so uh, intriguing, 23-year-old hard-throwing right-hand reliever, uh, 2.36 ERA, 65 strikeouts, 14 walks, and in 42 innings pitch, but after being promoted to highway has struggled. So uh, not a lot of interesting prospects, I think, coming up in Philly at the moment.
0: In Milwaukee they acquired relief pitcher Anthony Swarzak from the Chicago White Sox. I'll be talking with Jock Thompson about this cuz Swarzak was being rumored to be standing by to take over the closer role in Chicago. Apparently that's not going to happen. Tom Kephart covered the trade in playing time today. What's going on with Anthony Swarzak in Milwaukee?
2: Well, what you know what this means obviously is that um, that uh, low leverage reliever Michael Blazek has lost his roster spot. Um and Swarzak could easily displace Jacob Barnes as their primary eighth inning setup reliever and the backup closer. So that's what, what looks like where Swarzak could be, could be uh, slotted in Milwaukee. Uh, he has a higher BPV. Barnes also has a 100 plus BPV. So that's a significant addition to the Milwaukee bullpen where they can kind of uh, mix and match and, and uh, read the stats and see who can get whom out. Um, Swartzek's significant ERA advantage, has, despite a similar xERA, is primarily attributable to his having both a higher strand rate, lower home run per nine than Barnes. So he looks better on paper. We would say, in an HQ perspective, skills aren't uh, aren't a whole lot uh, different. But clearly they'll be in the setup mix, and likely we'll get the the bulk of Milwaukee's holds.
0: Actually, uh, Michael Blazek isn't he the guy he, they gave him a spot start, and he he's the guy that gave up all those home runs in a row to the Nationals. I wasn't think so.
2: He? I think he was the one that uh, that that may have re- That may have signed his ticket right there.
0: Yes, it it was uh, quite the disaster, and uh, I think it was his first career start, in fact, and maybe his last.
2: (laughs) Maybe his last. They may have decided he's not a starter after that. Yeah, uh, no
0: kidding, and uh, it can't be that uh, helpful for the old confidence as a bullpen pitcher either to to know that a guy can come in and give up four home runs in an inning in any context is bad. Uh, Finally, Nick, Stephen Nickrand, columnist at BaseballHQ.com does the Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide and the Batting Buyer's Guide, and in that Batting column. He was looking at surgers and faders, comparing batters from 2016 to 2017 on a skills basis, and some of the names that he came up with: Tommy lastella Aaron Altier, Jabari Blash. But the name that popped out to me is Washington first baseman and occasional outfielder Adam Lind.
2: Yeah, you know Adam Lind is one of those guys. I, I do a, I, I've done for the last several years a piece for USA Today on. Uh, on, on, uh, neglected veterans and Adam Lind is certainly one of those. It doesn't matter where he is. He's always kind of neglected. But, you know, this guy has enjoyed a wonderful bounce back year so far in 2017. OPS has surged from 717 to 944. Uh, that's a, that's a huge surge. He hasn't done it by hacking. His eye ratio is up from 0.29 to 0.61. So he's seen the ball well. Uh, underlying metric support. What he's doing, a 144 hard contact index, a, uh, 151 expected uh, power index, 79 BPV. Right now, just a part-time bat. But uh, if uh, if playing time opens up, he's sure not going to hurt you to have on your roster. And if he earns more playing time after the trade deadline, uh, he could really be worth having uh, someone to, to have on your roster.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think so too. Adam Lind is really having a good year, and he's had good years in the past. He's been a real valuable fantasy asset in certain years in the past. Now, the question about playing time is, Nick, how do we see a path for a guy in Washington to add at-bats? Washington certainly is not struggling in the uh, power area, as we just talked about, or in producing runs generally. How does Adam Lind find that extra playing time? Are we considering maybe he's going to get traded out of Washington? It doesn't seem likely.
2: That, that doesn't seem likely at this point. So, I, you know, that's one of those things where uh, it's hard to know exactly what might happen at the trade deadline with someone like Adam Lind. Currently, is the backup for Ryan Zimmerman at first base. Uh, we know there's an injury history there. Uh, so that might be the most likely thing is that if something should happen and there could be an injury. Uh, outfield looks pretty solid in Ross right at the moment. Uh, Jason Wirth, but there's an injury history there as well. Uh, Michael Taylor, Brian Harper. Uh, so, uh, you know, probably not a, a immediate path to playing time, but injuries certainly in either the outfield or at first base could lead to Lynn getting more and more time in the lineup.
0: And I mentioned that he has been a useful fantasy contributor. In 2013, he was a $20 player, then $11 player the next year, 19 in 2015. He fell back to a $7 player last year, and I think he, that's when he fell off people's radar. But he's back up to $11 this year in only $147 at bats So if you give him whatever would be normal at this time of year, 300 or so, he could easily be a $20 player again.
2: Very definitely. An intriguing kind of guy, I think, at this point in the season.
0: All right, Nick, thanks for bringing us up to date on the National League. Always interesting, and we have the deadline to look forward to. I'll talk to you again next week, and we'll get into it.
2: All right. Thank you, Patrick.
0: Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and, of course, our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com, Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show.
3: Hey, PD, how you doing?
0: I'm doing all right. Uh, Got a lot of action to look at in the American League and in the National League. I've already spoken with Nick about the National League, so let's go to the American League. And for only leaguers, especially, who need stolen bases and maybe a little bit of runs, uh, Eduardo Nunez was dealt to Boston from San Francisco, probably the biggest trade of the week so far. Uh, Nunez's primary position in San Francisco was third, but he also played a little left field and shortstop. And Boston has called up super prospect Rafael Devers after a brief Triple A stop, and he contributed. Looks like they've got too many guys at third. Uh, how How does this all shake out, Jock?
3: Yeah, this is a nice little deal for Boston, and then, like you mentioned, uh, for AL owners who need stolen bases. Uh, Nunez is coming over. It's it's the end of July. There's a lot of Red Sox players that are banged up, and and yeah, his uh, his primary position has been at third base, and of course, that's been a problem area for Boston. Now, him and uh, now all of a sudden, they look pretty deep with him and Devers up at the same time. Um, on the other hand, if Devers, if Devers flames out, I mean, this gives the Red Sox a little bit of wiggle room over there. I personally don't think Devers is going to flame out. He, uh, he looked good in AAA. He's already hit a home run in his first eight bats at Boston. He's making a lot of contact. Um, Nunez plays all over the field. Yeah, he played a lot of third base in, in San Francisco. But he's gonna be in the lineup most nights just uh either hitting against lefties at third base, uh giving the left-handed hitting Devers arrest. Uh he could be in left field spelling one of the corner outfielders. Uh uh Mitch Moreland has had some uh some real real problems hitting in uh in July. One thirty six batting average, no homers and sixty-six at bats. He might be due for a DL stint. Uh Xavier bogarts uh is uh is uh, hurting a little bit at shortstop. Uh, Nunez can play over there. He's going to play, you know, probably five days a week. And, uh, you know, again, at the end of the season, everybody needs a blow. So a nice pickup by the Red Sox.
0: I was surprised to see that the uh, BaseballHQ.com playing time forecast still has Eduardo Nunez at only 55 percent of the available uh, playing time with Devers, uh, or Devers, I guess it is, at 50 percent and then a host of uh, others rattling around at the various positions. Uh, I would have thought Nunez would play more often than that.
3: Yeah, that that's my guess too and, you know, it's we're probably, I think, short about 10-15% on that one because I definitely see him in the lineup at least four or five times a week.
0: And uh, any platoon advantages to be played as far as uh, Eduardo Nunez is concerned? It looks like he's pretty square across left-handers and right-handers.
3: Yeah, that's um, that's going to be interesting. I th- I don't I don't see that much difference there. And and again, we're talking about Fenway Park. So uh, th- what's really going to be interesting is to see how he handles that as opposed to the cavernous uh, Pack Bell Field that he just came from.
0: And defensively, it'll be interesting, especially if they want to try to stick him out in left field. Uh, also, in the American League East, uh, the Rays pulled off a pretty big trade. They landed Lucas Duda from the Mets, giving up only a minor league relief pitcher. Uh, But the question is, where's Lucas Duda going to play? Logan Morrison is having a surprisingly good season at first. Corey Dickerson's been playing well in the D8 spot, although he's been slumping lately. Now, the Rays did lose Colby Rasmus a week or two ago, a surprise departure. He just walked away from baseball saying he was burned out. So they finally appeared to have solved all these extra outfielders, DH questions that were crowding people out of playing time. And then they go and turn around and they hire themselves a new guy whose primary position is DH.
3: Yeah. There's been a lot of shuffling uh, over in Tampa Bay uh, for over the last month uh, with, with Rasmus leaving and, uh, and, and uh, the other acquisitions, the injuries that they've had, uh, obviously they're going to move some things around because Duda's going to play and, and that was a good pick. This is a good pickup for the Rays. Uh, the obvious move here is moving Dickerson uh, to, to left field full time. He's had a terrific year, I think, as you noted. Um, he was the primary DH for most of the year, but, but he's been playing a lot more left field and that's where he played in Colorado. Uh, Recently, they've been uh, spelling a lot of players at DH, like like most clubs have late in the season. Um, we're projecting uh, Duda now for I think 60 percent of the playing time at DH, um, and and lately uh, with with uh, Kevin Kiermeyer out and of course Rasmus gone, the Rays have been playing a lot of peter borges and shane peterson so those are the guys that are really going to lose time Uh, on the other hand things are going to be different when kevin kiermeyer returns and the latest on him is he's going to return around august 9th and 10th he's supposedly making good progress on his rehab and that's when you're going to see i think speedster alex Smith move toward more of a of a bench role so uh so his stolen bases could uh could uh decline a little bit down the stretch
0: Uh, Peterson was already sent down, in fact, to make roster room, and I'd be willing to bet this means quite a bit less playing time for Burgos, as you suggest. Uh, I was looking at Corey Dickerson. I mentioned a moment ago that his last few weeks haven't been so great, and uh, I'm just looking at the last four weeks. uh, In the start of July, uh, 182 on-base percentage, then 385, which is good, but then 250, 278. His OPSs uh, have been under 700 the last couple of weeks, is there a chance here that Corey Dickerson just loses time period?
3: Yeah, you know, um, the only the only weak hitter versus right-handed pitching in that in in uh, in that in that current lineup is Borges. He doesn't he doesn't play a lot. Duda has a has a nine thirteen OPS against righty pitching, so he could. You know he could DH against righties, you know for sure, and they could they could uh, uh, rejigger their outfield. This is part and parcel also of, of late season slumps. I mean, let's face it, uh, these guys are tired, and we're going to see people, pe- uh, we're going to see players go through this. So I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Dickerson get some rest a little bit down the stretch. Uh, that's the, uh, that's the great thing about trading for guys like uh, Duda. It gives you a chance to move things around, and, and with Kiermaier coming back, obviously. Uh, Smith could play a little bit in place of uh, of Dickerson if he's not uh, if he's not playing well. But but uh, Duda has his his OPS is seven fifty seven versus lefties, which is which is pretty ordinary.
0: Yeah, it is, and that's what makes me wonder about this whole deal. If the Rays had any issues, it certainly wasn't how well they hit against right handed pitching. I mean, Dickerson was a nine hundred ish OPS, um, Morrison's a nine hundred ish OPS. Uh, Steven Souza's over 900 OPS against right-handed pitching their struggles seem to be against left-handers which makes it weird that they would pick up Duda who as you said is just ordinary in that department
3: yeah it wouldn't surprise me to see more going down though there's a lot of players that teams want to move I think we're going to see a lot of action over these next three four days it'll be interesting to see what Tampa Bay does
0: well they did make another move they acquired a bullpen arm in Dan Jennings from the White Sox uh, what's the impact for Dan Jennings going to Tampa
3: yeah, it's kind of interesting. Campus Penn is, is not very good. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that they haven't made more moves. Um, they, they're, they're set up, they're using Brad Boxberger, who's been okay. He's imploded a few times. Um, they uh, recently, uh, I, I think, I'm not sure of the time period here I'm looking at, uh, uh, since Xavier Sedania uh, 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 went down in April, uh, left-handed raised relievers have combined for about 26 innings with a 5.88 ERA, so they really needed Jennings' skills. Um, I think he's going to get more holds in uh, in Tampa Bay. Obviously, they're going to get more wins than than, than uh, Jennings was seeing in Chicago. So, uh, if you're in a deep league uh, hold situation, uh, Jennings is an interesting pickup.
0: Yeah, I imagine a lot of people rushed out to grab him when Tyler Clippard moved over to the White Sox and started stinking, and the rumors were that Jennings was going to uh, maybe leapfrog up to that closer role. Now he's out of the situation altogether. I wonder if there's any, well, probably no chance of getting saves in Tampa Bay. Here's the thing about Jennings. A jock, a three sixty-five ERA, a three eighty-seven expected ERA, that's not world-beating for a leaf pitcher, an ERA in the mid-threes.
3: Yeah, I'm really more looking at the playing time opportunity, or the, I should say the innings, the innings opportunity he's going to get in Tampa Bay, which really needs some help uh, setting up uh, uh, Alex Colomay.
0: And, uh, of course, Tampa's quite a bit better of a team, and therefore, if uh, Jennings slots into that late, high-leverage relief situation, could be some vulture wins there as well. Uh, Now, speaking of Dan Jennings, he's traded out of Chicago, and uh, another guy who looked like he might close for the White Sox, Anthony Swarzak, was also traded out of the league to Milwaukee. Where does this all put the Chicago White Sox bullpen, especially in the late innings?
3: Yeah, we touched on this briefly last week, and uh, the White Sox situation was bad last week. It's now even worse if you're looking for for saves. Tyler Clippard now, uh, he looks like he might be the favorite initially here in Chicago, but his his, uh, 5.26 ERA and a 4.90 expected ERA doesn't exactly make us want to chase him or have a lot of... uh, Uh, confidence in him obviously anything can happen over the next two months Uh, Chicago could come up with another name who knows but uh, right now I would be holding and watching this situation from afar I would not be chasing Tyler Clippard or any of the White Sox relievers right now
0: the uh, Baseball HQ playing time splits show Gregory and Fonte picking up 25% of the available saves. Uh, he hasn't been in the big leagues since 2010, and he was very briefly in the big leagues back then. His ERA for this year's 450th whip is 154. Then you've got Jake Petriska and Juan Manaya, 5% each of saves. You're right, I don't think there's anybody here, including Tyler Clippard, that I really want to spend any fab money on or, or risk any kind of uh, implosions.
3: Yeah, if you look up and down our team page for the White Sox and the ERAs, uh, or the, the ERAs and expected ERAs, and, uh, I mean, there's a few high strikeout guys, but they sure aren't getting the results, and that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah, most of the guys who strike out a lot of guys also walk a lot of guys, unfortunately. Uh, I'll say this about Gregory Infante this year. He's not walking a lot of uh, guys, uh, as many as he has in the past, but his command ratio is still under two. Boy, none of these guys looks good to me. If I was going to gamble on any of them, I think it might be Patriska. Uh, Kansas City made a big deal earlier in the week picking up three pitchers. Starter Trevor Cahill, closer Brandon Maurer, and setup man Ryan Buckter all from the San Diego Padres. Matt Dodge was covering this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What kind of haul is this for American League-only fantasy owners?
3: Well, KC's really surprisingly competitive in the wildcard race. They've made a little run lately, and Cahill's an interesting pickup. He's, uh, he's going to slot uh, quickly into Nate Carnes vacated spot. Carnes is obviously now on the DL with uh, thoracic outlet syndrome and is out for the season Um, obviously the the DH is no plus for Cahill and Kauffman Stadium shows some scoring inflation but uh, overall it's surprisingly home run resistant and and even compares favorably to Petco Park which has given up a lot more home runs lately and uh, and going to benefit for, from better defense in Kansas City. He didn't have a he didn't have particularly great uh, infield play uh, where he was in, in in San Diego, and his numbers are good: uh, 3.69 ERA, 3.32 expected ERA, uh, 10.6 strikeouts. Uh, he was he was getting ground balls. He wasn't giving a lot of, of the home runs. Uh, nice pickup for Kansas City.
0: Might be a nice pickup over there for American League only uh, owners looking for a fab buy. In, uh, in the uh, wins race and in the strikeout race, uh, could be a real help there. And the decimals aren't going to be too bad either. The projection from Baseball HQ is a 350 ish ERA. The whip is going to be a little high at 133 because he does give up a fair amount of base hits, but uh, certainly he could do worse. Now, what about the bullpen pieces in Kansas City? It seems to be going from a somewhat of a shaky situation to much more solid.
3: Yeah, that, that, that's a little that's a little tougher to project, uh, just because they're. Their stats are so are so different and so so interesting. Brandon Mauer had a 5.58 as a closer for the Padres ERA. Uh, his expected ERA is almost two runs lower, so you would expect him to really do better, a lot better, in Kansas City and particularly with the better defense over there. On the other hand, Buckter, his ERA was 2.97 with a 4.17 expected ERA, so he he could uh, he could regress a little bit. Uh, but uh, both of these guys uh, they strike out a lot of hitters. Uh, uh they, they, they've got good stuff. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they do in the AL.
0: And I know that uh, some people are concerned about maybe Joaquin Soria is going to lose any chance he had of picking up saves. But uh, just on Friday, BaseballHQ.com had a story saying Soria is definitely still going to be in the mix at the end of the bullpen over there.
3: Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Again, we're getting late in the season. You're seeing a lot of different names getting saves. Uh, people are getting rests, particularly uh, down the stretch for, for – uh, 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 postseason competitive teams. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Kansas City mix it up a little bit if they're involved in close games and they have to and, uh, and Soria will be there.
0: Yeah, this was Mike Shears in Playing Time Tomorrow. Uh, Playing Time Tomorrow, of course, is the BaseballHQ.com regular feature where uh, analysts look at entire divisions and try to cast ahead to figure out what's going on. Kelvin Herrera has been going through a bit of a slump lately in his skills. Soria's been very solid, so this might be the time to buy low on Joaquin Soria. You still might sneak a few saves uh, sometime between now and the end of the season. The Astros, jock, Ho oh suddenly being hit with all kinds of position player injuries. They had pitching problems as well. They lost Carlos Correa. We talked about that. Uh, We talked very enthusiastically last week about third baseman Colin Moran. I went out and fabbed him on the basis of what we decided. Uh, He looked terrific, as advertised, in the early going. But in just his seventh at-bat, he fouled a ball off his face, producing a fracture and a concussion and a DL stint that's going to probably keep him out until September. You covered all of this for playing time today. What's going to happen, first of all, with third baseman Colin Moran?
3: Yeah, that was really irritating for me as well. I had actually picked up Moran on uh, f- on two free agent days in both keeper leagues I was in about two weeks before his call-up, and he was he was three for six uh, over before before the injury he'd hit a home run he was really looking good uh um he's uh it looks like he has a concussion he has a cheek fracture he's not experienced any vision issues which is good uh and the last i checked no determination been made as to whether he was going to need surgery but he's probably going to be out for most of august this was a pretty nasty uh injury it, it looks like his uh his opportunity is up in smoke uh right now so um we'll have to wait and see but uh yeah it, it hurt a lot of us uh, uh, the injury to Colin Moran
0: shortly after Moran got hurt George Springer strained a quad he hasn't played since Tuesday Alex Bregman opted out of a game with some kind of uh, injury problem what are the Astros doing especially around uh, their batting order and the replacements for these starred level players
3: well, at least for now, uh, neither of these guys have gone on the DL, and uh, and the Astros lineup uh, hasn't looked like it's missed much of a beat. Uh, they call up Tyler White, which who, who's an interesting guy. I don't know if you remember White, but last year he uh, he was the starting first baseman at the beginning of the year. He was considered a plate skills, minimal power guy who might be able to hit 290 or so, uh, but with not a lot of home runs. Um, he's a first baseman, third baseman by trade, but he's played all over the infield this season uh, in the minors in at uh, AAA Fresno. He- every position at least 10 times in an effort to improve his versatility. He's not a plus defender everywhere, but he can certainly man the corners and he's he's gotten a little playing time with Moran out and these other injuries. He's played some first base. He's three for 10 in the early going, so he's interesting too. And and like Moran, he he's actually up his power. He's already at a career high 18 homers in in Triple A. Unlike Moran, he's probably, uh, he, well, he's, he's not a left-handed hitter. He's a righty, so um, the, he's got a disadvantage there. Um, he's mildly interesting. I don't like him as much as I like Moran. Um, they're, they're using uh, Yulieski-Guriel at third base a little bit. Uh, so um, they've got the corners covered. What's What becomes interesting now is that uh, Marwan Gonzalez, Gonzalez is pretty much a full-time player at, uh, at shortstop right now, which is good for Gonzalez owners, and, of course, Uh, Enough said about Gonzalez. He's been terrific this year.
0: Especially good for Gonzalez owners in keeper leagues because it looks like he may get that multi-position eligibility again next year, and it could include shortstop, third, and the outfield, which would be a real boon for his owners uh, looking ahead to 2018. Uh, One note about uh, Tyler White. You mentioned that he's been uh, stroking home runs in AAA at a higher rate, and he's still being patient. I wanted to draw people's attention to that. He's only... uh, He's still getting a lot of walks, uh, 38, 39 walks down there, which is really good. Uh, The Astros also recalled outfielder Derek Fisher, uh, another top prospect whom we've talked about here at the show uh, when George Springer went down. What effects with uh, that move for Derek Fisher and the Astros outfield?
3: Yeah, I, I really like Fisher, and and I think of all these injuries, I think Springer's the one that actually could land on the on the deal. And and uh, Fisher came up, and he immediately was was productive in his first game. He went one for three with a couple of RBIs and a walk. Uh, I think. I think uh, it's possible that Houston could say, hey, let's just give Springer a break. Fisher's playing well. Let's, let's see what he does. Uh, if, if Springer's absence turns into a DL stint, uh, he could carve out some playing time here and make, uh, make some tough choices for, uh, for the Astros. Uh, it's going to be interesting.
0: Yeah, Fisher's got the nice speed-power combo and a a decent batting average. He could certainly be a get. I tried to get him in FAB a couple of weeks ago and got outbid. Uh, Jock, with all these good young prospects in the Astros organization, a lot of them look very close to Major League ready. If they're not already Major League ready, they have chips to deal. Uh, How likely do you think it is that the Astros may still make more trades to get ready for the stretch and especially for the playoffs?
3: Yeah, I think it's really likely. Uh, obviously, um, they they could they could use some pitching. Everyone can. They're they, they're actually in a, little, in a little better shape than uh, than a lot of clubs are on their pitching. That's their position players that have that have started to go south on the injury column. Where they really could use some help, and it's kind of funny right now, but it, but they're being exposed is is in the middle infield. Uh, they've got plenty of outfield depth throughout the organization. They got two or three guys right now in AAA that would start for other clubs. I wouldn't be surprised to see them trade from that outfield that's not just for pitching, but maybe to get a, a, a middle infielder down the stretch.
0: Well, that'll be something to watch uh, for sure. Of course, uh, a middle infielder coming over might not be such a great fab buy for somebody uh, in an American League only situation because if we assume Carlos Correa is coming back, no middle infielder in the world is going to replace Correa or Jose Altuve in that middle infielder role in, uh, in Houston.
3: Or even Marvin Gonzalez, who is the third, who has been pretty much their third middle infielder all year when they need help.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought too. I'm I'm more interested in seeing what Houston does in so far as getting pitching uh, sorted out, rather than uh, infield. I think their infield if they if we assume that the injuries are short term those infielder injuries then i think they're going to be pretty pretty much happy with that situation jock thanks a million for helping us out this week we got the deadline on monday so i guess we'll have plenty more to talk about next friday or at least i hope so
3: yeah no doubt pd we'll see you next week
0: Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, it's our feature expert interview, Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com coming up on Baseball HQ Radio.
4: I was asking you, sir, uh, why it is that baseball wants this bill passed.
2: I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. I'm not in here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time.
5: Well, Mr. Mantle, do you uh, have any observations with reference to uh, the affability of the antitrust laws to baseball uh, my, my views are just about the same as casey's
6: <laughs> <laughs> baseball
0: hq radio and welcome back to baseball hq radio i'm patrick david now it's time for our feature expert interview and it's my pleasure to be joined by ray murphy the co-general manager and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. It
4: has, Patrick. Thanks for the invite.
0: Not at all. We're glad to have you. Now, Ray, the trading deadline, it's in a weird place this year with the deadline being on the Monday, but several pieces have moved already. uh, So there'll be some interesting fab moves, waiver claims to be had on the weekend. But with the deadline actually Monday, there could be more, maybe bigger names moving. How are you playing this? Are you going to act this weekend or are you going to wait to see what comes on Monday?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. almost uh couple of times before when this has come up and makes you wonder if we almost need to adjust our rules in fantasy leagues to make sure that you know we get a uh, get a good queen fab deadline after the deadline and not uh, you know and make some adjustments but the calendar is what it is and if your league is struggling with it um, or if you're trying to figure out how to play it it's it's interesting I think in an NL situation I think I probably would have already pushed in hard on uh, Quintana and that was. You know, what a lot of people were asking the question about whether you'd jump in all-in on Quintana, you know, a week or two ago, or wait for what might come later. And I was pretty firmly in the you know grab the bird in hand camp. And if you're if you had the hammer with Fab and only one guy to spend it on, and I I would have used it on Quintana. The AL side is thorny. Or if you didn't get Quintana and you're watching the other stuff that is flowing in this weekend, I I think you know it's always a you know a needs based calculation if something comes across that looks like it can be of help to you if there's you know, something that matches your category needs or you need a starting pitcher or you need saves or whatever and you're tr- struggling with choosing a second tier guy who can meet those needs I'd probably jump on that rather than wait for the, what comes on Monday you know sometimes on the deadline the you know the last pieces to move are the bigger ones and in this case I'm not so sure what the guy I'd be waiting for is. There's obviously a lot of buzz about on the pitching front, Verlander and Darvish. Uh, but you yeah, know, Darvish hasn't looked that good lately and there's some some thought that Verlander won't move till after the deadline because his contract is such that you know, that, an August waiver deal can happen with him. So I'm generally more of a take-the-bird-in-hand guy if you can find a decent fit and not let the, you know, the perfect get in the way of the good. So I, I would probably be acting pretty decisively on Sunday if there was something that appealed to me.
0: Of course, for the most part, this only applies to whoever's got the hammer in the league. If you're if you're ninth best uh, fab total, it probably is a moot point because you're not going to win any of them in any case. But uh, I like your uh, positioning on the bird-in-the-hand situation, not only because... Uh, well, f- Of the reason that somebody else may may not come along but also you get the extra week and that uh, in the case of a pitcher that's a couple of starts in the case of a hitter it could be what 50 uh 40 50 at well not 40 50 35 at bats 30 to 35 at bats but that can be a huge difference in a tight race
4: yeah in terms of percentage of the season left i mean we're down to what nine weeks or something like that eight after the deadline so you're talking about you know 15 percent additional impact or something like that that matters And you're right about the, uh, you know, you say, you know, this really only matters for the guy who has the hammer. But you know, that's not exactly true in the sense that if you're second, second or third in line behind the guy who has the hammer, and you're not sure how he's going to play it, you sort of got to play play some contingencies based on whether that guy jumps in or that guy decides to wait for the bigger the bigger fish on Monday. The minor might not come. He might leave the door open for you to uh, gobble up some other guys while he waits. uh, while he waits for something else to fall out of this guy.
0: Another aspect of Fab, Ray that comes along is this whole idea of gaming the amount you need to bid. I'm in second spot in my American League tout, and the guy in front of me I don't think is going to want to bid on Eduardo Nunez. I do want to bid on Nunez. So do I bid $1 more than the guy next behind me, or do I need to worry a little bit that the guy in first place might bid $2 more to try to game the system?
4: Oh, well, to some extent, I think you can, you know, if you've got, a read on the guy in front of you that you know you, you expect him to not be interested. Then, you know I, I don't think you uh, you know split your bets. I think you you know trust that read and worry about taking you know play, bidding enough to get the guy away from the people who you think are also bidding on him. And if somebody who didn't bid on him or somebody who you didn't expect to bid on him gets him, then you know maybe you evaluated him not needing not needing Nunez because you know he didn't need stolen bases or whatever so that might mean that he picked him up as a trade piece and maybe you can go get him that way so you know if you've got you know a good read on somebody that they're not in the picture then you know inevitably in these things you kind of can't under uh, can't plan for all contingencies so I, I i tend to spend my cycles trying to plan for the ones that are reasonably likely to happen
0: And uh, you mentioned the idea of bird in the hand versus two in the bush kind of thing. Does that mean that you're a more aggressive fab spender early in the season rather than hoarding for the uh, deadline deal? I am. I think
4: I'm pretty balanced about it. The thing I, my general rule in fab is I very rarely push all in, you know, in some number of weeks in the given year, in the year, there are going to be. You know what you know the apple apple of the week or the you know the flavor of the month the guy who you know falls out of the sky and draws uh you know, in a thousand dollar league, fab league, he'd draw a triple digit bid, or he'll draw draw out a. You know, it'll take twenty five dollars to win him out of a hundred, something like that. I'm almost never in on those guys. I just feel like the you know, unless I have a clear need and there's like a, a new closer who's got great skills or something like that. Um, I generally shy away from those guys, and I kind of you know shop in the bargain bin or you know tweaking around the edges and fab. So. As a result, you know I may not have the hammer at the deadline, but I usually have enough at the deadline to get something. And then I actually really like having one of the bigger fab balances after the deadline in August and September because you, know, you get a nice infusion of new talent there. And you know some people, you know some people stop paying attention or aren't as much up on the prospects or the playing time situations. And I really feel like if you, you know, if you grind all year with that and, and hold yourself some money for August and September, even though to your earlier point, there's less time for those guys to make an impact. I feel like you can find some real nuggets there that can make a difference in the end game.
0: Another aspect of valuations. And we had a story at baseballhq.com a year or two ago about this, I do believe. and, And that is understanding the scale of your fab, uh, the story as I recall it said that in a thousand dollar league a guy will usually go for more than in a hundred dollar league if you scale the two so a twenty five dollar guy in a hundred dollar league will go for you know three hundred in a in a thousand uh, dollar league because three hundred seems like less of a chunk out of a thousand than twenty five is out of a hundred and there's something to that in fact it's true because you still have 700 units left whereas you only have 75 the other way so uh, Typically, uh, leagues are either 100 or 1,000. Have you found that it affects your bidding, or do you scale that in to your considerations somehow?
4: Yeah, I think it does affect my bidding. And I went through a stretch earlier this season. I, pl- I play in both leagues, league formats I that I have 100 and 1,000. And the $100 league I play in is Labor Mixed. And I went through a stretch early this season where I was getting outbid on everybody. And I. Th- Realized after you know three, four, or five weeks of you know getting outbid by a couple of bucks here and there on guys I kind of really wanted, that I think in my mind I had gotten to a place where that hundred dollar budget was you know felt kind of constricting, and I was playing an overly conservative because I'm like I only have you know seventy two dollars left or whatever it is for the whole season, and I'll be like uh, I I would be bidding two dollars on a guy where I you know I, I really should have been bidding five or six, and. It took getting beat over the head for like four or five weeks in a row of you know losing out on the guy I wanted to say like, oh well you know seventy two dollars out of a hundred really isn't that bad you know I can afford to throw a couple of bucks bucks more into these bids and I I sort of had made a correction just because. You know, I sort of had gotten the uh, the thousand dollar metric in my head, and like you say, that sort of gives you you know for no good mathematical reason, just you know just for emotional reasons, it gives you sort of a oh I'm flush with cash, and then you see a you know a, a two digit balance in another league, and you're know, like oh I got I got to be careful here, you know it is it is something that I I kind of you know fell into that trap a little bit this year, and I've been trying to you know dig myself out of.
0: And another factor that comes into it is the amount that is required, a minimum bid for fab. I used to play in a league that had a, a $5 minimum on a $100, dollars uh, on a am sorry, on a $260 fab budget, but you couldn't bid a zero or like you can in tout or a $1 bid like you can in most leagues. And that too has to factor into it because at a certain point, you're sort of counting your blinds in poker terms to say, you know, if I bid this much, I'm only going to have $40 left, but that's not 40 guys I can pick up, it's eight. And therefore, I have to be maybe a little more cognizant of how much money I have left behind because I got to be aware of the minimums. And sometimes the minimums change as you get later in the year as well.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. I and mean, your tout is funny as uh, I wonder what your experience with this is, but in uh, you know since Tav's gone to the thousand dollar budget in the last uh, year or two, cattle also would, uh, allows for zero dollar bids, but zero dollar bids are you know all but irrelevant in a thousand dollar league because you know almost you know nobody actually runs out of money. you can save you know eight bucks out of your thousand and be able to one dollar bids instead of zero dollar bids. Meanwhile, in my in my hundred dollar league in labor, it doesn't allow zero dollar bids. So to, that's when you get into the you know the blind counting and trying to figure out you know how many weeks there are left, and I want to make sure I have a couple of bucks left for every week or whatever. But um, it's uh it, it's surprising how much design of a fab system you know things like that you know whether or not you allow a zero dollar bid, what your max bid is, what your minimum bid is, what your overall budget is. You know, really has more of an effect on strategy than you might think. And it's really for, as you were saying, sort of non-concrete emotional reasons. It shouldn't be that different, but it really does, you know, those subtle changes really add up up to a very different dynamic sometimes.
0: And I guess the bottom line is uh, this is something that has been uh, BaseballHQ.com mantra over the years since I started 25 years ago working for the site and before that even reading it, and that is know the rules of your league and think about how they function.
4: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it when the, and when the rules change or when you run into these dynamics like you and I are talking about where people play in multiple leagues that have different rules, you know, just Being up, you know, when it's Sunday night and you're making your fab and bids, just reminding yourself, hey, which website you're on and which league you're in, and thinking through the, you know, the the proper implications of what the rule set is, is, uh, you know, taking two or three minutes to process that might be the difference between winning and losing a bid when somebody else is just flying through the site and spraying bids around and not remembering the, you know, the, the nitty gritty details.
0: And if you had $500 of real money coming out of your wallet and we were going to force you to put it down on some player who's not yet traded, but who's going to be traded by the deadline, who would it be?
4: To me it's Yonder Alonso. He's gotta go. We know we know Oakland wants to move him. Somebody you know, there are enough places where you know, an additional bat, even if it's not a you know, a clear upgrade, someone's gonna add him. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him end up in Boston. Not that he's all that different from Mitch Moreland, but Moreland has cooled off and has banged up a little bit and Alonzo has been hotter lately. So something like that makes sense to me. Obviously that scenario is not a league crossover scenario, so it doesn't get into any of the fab stuff we're talking about. But that's uh, that's one target who I think has to drop sometime soon.
0: It is an interesting point that you make because that would not be a league-crossing trade, and therefore it seems like it's less impactful. But again, you have to look at the situation. He would be going from a pretty bad offensive team to a really good offensive team. Even if a guy's staying in the league, of course, if you own him, that's a big help to you. But if if you're... Uh, um, for whatever reason, a free agent moves from one team to another. You have to take a look at that and say, is this guy going to get more playing time? Is the roster better? Is he going to score more runs? Is the park better? There are a lot of factors to consider, even in an intra league move.
4: Yeah, and then there are the then there are the ripple effects. You know, I always like to write a column, you know, a day or two after the trade deadline that talks about the you know the implications or the cascades. You know, we do a lot of that in playing time today, but sometimes you get into a, you know, some more speculative situations about the you know the teams who have. Uh, made trades, what they're gonna do, you know, that the the sellers, like well, what would Oakland do at first base after they trade alonzo We had a discussion in our forums about that earlier this week and we were trying to figure out the relative merits of uh you know Matt Olson versus would they put Ryan Healy at first base and pull Davis into DH and give some of the young outfielders more time. You know, the the way those ripple out and you know what organizational priorities are for the last two months sort of post deadline, you know, there 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 end up being some different ways things could play out and sometimes you can find uh, find an angle that didn't, uh, didn't necessarily pop up when people do their sort of instant reaction right after the trades.
0: And one other thing I, I would point out is, if you think Yonder Alonso is going to be traded, uh, take a look. Uh, considering that they're probably going to get prospects back, and they may not be that good of prospects, look in the organization and see is there somebody who might benefit by being called up, somebody having a good season, for example. There's a, lots of ways to play the trade market beyond just waiting for John Carlos Stanton to get traded to the Yankees.
4: Yeah, for sure. There's you know the, the trade deadline is easy if. You have the most fab in your league, and Giancarlo Stanton gets traded to the Yankees. There's, uh, you know, a monkey can ma- can master that transaction, but you know, the places where we, you know, earn our stripes and you know gain an edge on our competitors is, you know. Finding which of the uh, the lesser moves ha- has an impact on somebody that you can go pick up, or you know, changes the playing time calculus, or a ballpark factor like you're talking about to make somebody more valuable than it really appears, and you know, pushing. A li- I'm a big believer that pushing all the little edges is how you win your league, not by having Giancarlo Stanton fall in your lap. If that happens, congratulations. But you know, I'm going to tip my cap to you more uh, more forcefully at the end of the season if you win because you m- made a lot of great little moves and you just you know happened to hit the lottery one day.
0: Before we leave this topic, I talked earlier with uh, Jock Thompson about the uh, Kansas City San Diego trade, and I'm curious what you think of Trevor Cahill as a Royal.
4: You know, I was I own Cahill in a bunch of leagues, and you know, before he went on the DL in the beginning of June or whatever it was, he he really looked like he was sharp. Um, so when I was actually before the trade this week, when I was just trying to figure out my lineups in some leagues, um, you know, he had he was supposed to have a home start for the Padres against the Mets, and overall in, you know, four or five starts since coming back off the DL. He has not looked as good overall, but he did have one really good home start at Petco that, you know, he, he really seemed like he was thriving in Petco. So, on the one hand, I'm disappointed to see him leave Petco at all. On the other hand, he's going to a better team context because any team context is better than San Diego. And, you know, Kansas City's still a pretty good pick, place to pitch on its own. So, as a Cahill owner, you know, that could have turned out much worse. He could have ended up in, you know, Pick a contender who's got a bad ballpark. He could he could have ended up in Boston. He could have ended up with the Yankees. There are places where that would have gone poorly, but Kansas City seems like you know of a bunch of different options. It's uh, you know one of the better ones.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, in your general manager's office column just before the break, you ran a poll of the Baseball HQ staff about various players, facts and flukes, and other topics. Uh, let's start with the big picture. Anything really surprise you?
4: Yeah, there were. Um, that was a fun one. It's always nice to, uh, you know, we, we sort of design these polls a couple times a year to try to do the... Uh, Get the wisdom of the crowd thing and figure that you're all, you know, 30 or however. 30, forty however many people respond to the poll from our staff can provide more uh, collective wisdom than you know me or Brent uh, writing, writing on our own so that's a uh, that's sort of the motivation behind it and we get some uh, we always get some interesting results there's some cool things in there you know we, have, we sort of have a sort of a template we use where we ask questions about you know hot starters who are going to sustain their performance and cold starters who aren't and you know bullpens and all sorts of fun stuff like that uh, so it's you know, we only ask, you know, 20 or 25 questions, but there's always a uh, list of uh, interesting things that come out of it. The thing that I was surprised at, and maybe since I wrote the questions, um, I, I I put some self-selecting bias in there is we ask people, like, you know, what which good, good first halves do you believe in? And, you know, almost all of them, our staff expressed some, you know, some good amount of confidence, and things were hot starts were going to continue for people like Mike Gustakis and Logan Morrison, and some people who you know, we didn't necessarily think that much of in the beginning of the season, but clearly in you know two and a half months, our opinions have changed significantly, and. You know, on the one hand, that might be just recency bias at work, but you know, a lot of times when you go when you look at the metrics, you know, there there is good reason for this. Stuff. The, these guys are reinventing themselves. I don't know how much of this is just you know. We can get into. You've talked on the show before about the juice ball and all these sorts of things. Whether this is just a population of players who are finding ways to take advantage of the new run scoring environment, et cetera. But you know, in general, the the the, the sense back to the poll was that you know, hot starts going to continue and cold starts aren't and Normally, I wouldn't take that as a great answer, but when you look into it in more detail, you know, I, I kind of agree with them.
0: I was surprised in those uh, in those factor fluke type questions at how non-committal a lot of the results were because uh, uh, I thought some of them looked like way more obvious fact to me. And I'll give you an example. The first half American League hitters, you listed the obvious guys and asked the staff, uh, which of these guys do you think is going to sustain? Morrison, Jose Ramirez, Elvis Andrews, Aaron Judge, Moustakas, Dickerson, Justin Smoke, and Avacil Garcia. All of these guys are having terrific first halves. And when I looked at the list, I thought to myself, most of these guys, I think, are really quite likely. And instead, most of them came in around the three mark, which is not sure or could go either way. And I understand that, you know, if you're not real positive about something, you want to sit on the fence. But, I mean, Jose Ramirez has been doing this for a year and a half now. I mean, what? how much more confident do you have to be? He got a four. But uh, Mustakas was under four. Uh, Dickerson was barely at three. Smoke was barely over three. That surprised me that there wasn't more... Firmness in these in these decisions or in these ratings.
4: Yeah, it is interesting, and sometimes I think that you know I've had this thought before in looking at this survey that maybe the weighted average is a little a little bit of not the best way to show that, and maybe like a spray chart of the votes would be better, or like a cluster chart kind of thing. Uh, if you take like Mustakas for for instance, you know that his rating came out at you know three point six seven out of five, but when you get down to the individual numbers, you know six out of 24 had him as either a four or a five, and then there were four neutrals and four who... Had him as mostly a fluke. So I did, you know, even though that number only comes out to a three and a half out of five, and it doesn't look that impressive, if you look at the actual individual votes, it's you know a three and a half number is actually pretty resounding to the good side. And you know, maybe the number is down because a lot more people gave him yeah, mostly fact as opposed to I totally believe in this. So maybe it's a question of you know degree or volume, but you know the tilt in the number, even if you at a three and a half, is pretty resounding to the one side of the scale if just not, you know, shouting it from the rafters.
0: I think that's right. Uh, there's a, always a challenge in amassing information and figuring out how to present it. And I think the average, uh, to your point, is a little bit misleading in that uh, a few guys voting zero or one can really outweigh a, 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 a group that's only voting in the three to five range whereas if you showed how many of those 24 voters uh said i like this guy to continue the reader would say oh i see that this is this is a, as a as a consensus the the belief in the group is much stronger than the average
4: right maybe even showing like the uh you know, what was the most common, re- the most common single response without, wor- you know, to your point, like, you know, to filter out the zero from the East German judge or whatever it is to just go and <laughs> say like, you, you, if you only had to pick one cell to put put your your vote in, which one do you put it in? Maybe that's an interesting way to reflect the chart. I, the tool can probably do that. I should fool around with that for the next time we do this.
0: I also noticed that there were more people willing to believe that the, uh, that the, underperformers were going to turn it around that that the overperformers were going to continue did you notice that and was that a surprise to you
4: i did notice that and i was kind of wondering about the uh you know the theory or the psychology behind that whether um there's you know even if you own a guy who's doing well that you can be like, Yeah, I used to, you know, Alex Wood has been brilliant this year and I own Alex Wood in a bunch of weeks. But so I really think Alex Wood is gonna, you know, keep hanging a sub two ERA in the second half. You know, even as a you know excited wood owner, I can you know I can look at that and say, no, he's you know, that he's a little out over his skis. I certainly don't expect this to continue at this rate. I hope he keeps helping me, but when, you know, let's be real here. He's not Clayton Kershaw. On the other hand, if you own a slow starter who has you know, burned you for the first half, but you still own him, then you probably still own him because you think he's going to come around. And coming around doesn't mean he's going to get back to, you know, have, have a bonkers second half that wipes out the slow start altogether and meets his projection. But even a half season of value like you were expecting when you acquired the guy, you know, you can probably talk yourself into that. Happening in the second half, especially if it's a guy you still own, so maybe that's maybe that's part of the calculus there. I don't know.
0: Question number eleven asked, and this remember this was right at the All Star break, so it's a few weeks ago now. How will Boston address the third base situation? And the three choices were: they'll make a deadline deal, they'll call up uh, Devers and and let him play, or they'll just keep mixing and matching as they were. And like something like ninety five percent said, make a deadline deal or call up Devers. And in fact, both things happened. So that was a really good guess. Had
4: an all above all of the above there, yeah. <laughs>
0: And uh, uh you're up there in Boston while we're there uh, how do you feel like uh, Eduardo Nuñez is going to fit in up there especially with Devers getting off to a good start
4: Yeah Devers is off to a good start and there's been a you know there's been a fair amount of, of disagreement here either some conflicting reporting from the Boston media and I don't know if that had something to do with the team was on the west coast when this all went up, when when this all came down and you know we're trying to figure it out from a mapping the playing time perspective obviously and you know, I I just don't believe they called up Devers to sit. I think he's going to play against most right-handed pitching. And Nunez, obviously, while he was playing third base in San Diego, he's excuse me. Um, San Francisco. Um, he's obviously more versatile than that, and the Sox have other places where they could use him. Um, I don't expect him to displace Xander Bogarts, but Bogarts has been admired in a horrendous slump for a while now, and you know a few days off wouldn't you know be the worst idea for him. And we mentioned Mitch Moreland earlier, and he's been up, too. We've been seeing a little more Hanley at, thir- at first base, so there's a possibility that you could even get Devers in the lineup as the DH and let Nunez play some third base. I, I think... I'm thinking of Nunez as the tenth man that he's going to move around and spell a bunch of people in the August heat and do those sorts of things and play third base, you know, 25 percent of the time against the left-handed pitchers when Devers sits. And so, in some sense, third base will be his primary position. But I expect him to play, you know, five days a week, twice at third and you know, three times at various other places. That's sort of how I see it right now. But the uh, the Red Sox actually not until today are announcing sort of the the cascading roster moves to. Uh, get the roster set up for uh, Nunez's arrival today and all that sort of stuff. So we'll know a little bit more then.
0: Both Jock and I noticed that the uh, Baseball HQ playing time uh, allocations in the uh, team charts said that currently the guess was that uh, Nunez was only going to be about 50% of the available playing time. And that seemed low to both of us because I think we both agreed with you that he could get a lot of playing time at a lot of different spots, kind of a super utility Tony Phillips guy. And uh, do you think that there's a chance that that 50% estimate might be going up?
4: Yeah, I think there probably is. I was working, uh, since I'm local, I was working with Matt Dodge, who handles our ALEs playing time allocations yesterday on this. And, then, and the 50% is sort of a hedge right now. Like I said, the uh, Red Sox haven't announced exactly what the corresponding moves are. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a uh, something we weren't totally expecting there. Uh, certainly, Marrero is probably going to be one of the guys moved out. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, a Moreland DL stint or... Probably not a Bogart scale stint, but some other way, is some the move. We're not seeing that unblocks some playing time for Nunez for the short term, and, and you, know, you know how it is. Once you get to into August here, after the deadline next week, then you know you, uh, one DL stint, two DL stints, get get you through August, and then you get to expanded rosters in September when you can do a lot of different things. So, you know, the other way you can get playing time is you know Nunez, of course, uh, you know just because he doesn't start somewhere doesn't mean he's not going to play, and you know the Red Sox could use a pinch runner for a couple of guys, and uh, there's some. Uh, Opportunities to work him the games where he doesn't start too. So, yeah, fifty percent might be a little bit low, but uh, it was hard to get higher than fifty percent until we saw what the corresponding roster moves are, which we're going we're to get later today. So, we'll be uh, we'll be tweaking further as we uh, get through both today, and then obviously the uh, the trading deadline on the other side of the weekend.
0: And I know you haven't done any of that calculations or deep thinking or talking with Matt possibly, but just as a Boston fan and as a guy who's been around this game for a long time, what do you think the ceiling is on Eduardo Nunez for a percentage of playing time for the rest of the season?
4: The percentage of playing time, you know, a lot of variables. Obviously, we just covered a bunch of them, and we didn't even really talk about whether Devers hits or not. Which you know, he hit a home run earlier this week in Seattle, and seems to be off to a good start. But you know, we can remember the uh, similar experiment last year with Yohan Moncada that did not go well. I mean, it could be that Devers comes home for a ten-game homestand and goes, you know, two for forty, and you know, the the answer has presented itself at that point, and Devers gets sent de- sent back down until September, and Nunez takes over third base. So, I mean, the ceiling is probably. You know, a darn near everyday player, an 80% playing time allocation kind of guy, uh, whether it's because Devers doesn't look ready or someone else goes on the DL or he just, you know, gets playing time at, you know, five or six days a week at three or four different positions. There's a, there's a lot of ways he can get, it, get to a lot of playing time, even as a, you know, quote-unquote 10th man, like I was calling him.
0: One of the questions in the poll also dealt with uh, two disappointing Philadelphia hitters and which one of them was a better bet for a surge in the second half. Uh, Michael Franco outstripped uh, Odabel Herrera by about 58 to 42, something like that. Uh, curiously enough, you had a, a uh, fact and fluke spotlight on Odubel Herrera, the outfielder in Philadelphia. What were the highlights of your deep deep dive into Odubel Herrera?
4: Yeah, this was a fun one. And I think the, the idea to take a deep dive in Herrera actually came from that poll that you referenced, uh, it, Brent and I were talking about it. Brent's a Philadelphia guy, so he obviously had some thoughts on Herrera, but uh, that, that thought that he would be an interesting study for this. So these spotlights are always a ton of fun to do. It's a chance to kind of throw the full analytic arsenal at one player and you know peel back the onion you know, a whole bunch of layers and see see what you come up with. And in Herrera's case, I, yeah, the answer was kind of interesting in and you know but the conclusion i came to at least not that it's a hard and fast answer is that you know maybe he maybe we were a little too excited about him or maybe he's just not quite the you know, budding star that you might have thought he was based on what he did in 2015 and 2016 he's uh he's regressed quite a bit this year but the ways in which he's regressed were sort of consistent with warning signs that we had in his skill set that he was hitting for a high average and stealing a lot of bases even though his expected batting average and his contract Excuse me. Contact rate. We're both sort of in the warning zone, and you know he's paying the price. Pitchers are, you know, one of the things I pointed out is that pitchers are throwing him less strikes than the major league average because he's becoming a little bit more of a free swinger, and he's clearly getting a reputation as a, someone who will chase out of the strike zone, and pitchers are exploiting that, and he hasn't managed to tighten that up, that that in his swing up yet, and until he does. He's going to be what he is right now and now at some point you would expect him to counter adjust and get back to you know being a little more disciplined and letting you know just putting the ball in play and letting his legs do the work for him but you know that's that's you know there were some points in the past you know looking at half season splits where it looked like he was developing a you know even a little bit of power and patience to go with that speed and it looked like there might be a you know a budding five category you know almost fantasy superstar kind of what what Kind of level you know, attainable for him, and basically my conclusion was to throw a bucket of cold water on that idea and say, you know his sort of ceiling or best case at this point is getting back to the you know table setter 290, 30 stolen bases kind of mode with a handful of homers, which is better than what we're seeing right now, but still maybe not what you thought it was going to be you know, a year ago at this time
0: before we talk more about Odabel Herrera in detail, and there's a lot uh, of interesting stuff in these deep dives, as you mentioned, in these facts and fluke spotlights, I like doing them and I like reading them. And one of the things I'd like to to bring up for the benefit of listeners, is this idea of arbitrary endpoints. So you had a section uh, called a tale of five halves, where you looked at uh, Bell Herrera's performance or from the first half of 2015, second half, first half of 16, second half. And then this year so far up to the break. And, uh, there are patterns to be seen in there that's for sure but you note that these endpoints are arbitrary and explain first of all what you mean by that and second of all why it matters so much to how we think about uh, performance analysis
4: yeah so you know it's kind of a sort of a basic of you know any statistical analysis is that you know endpoints Arbitrary, you know, any study you do where you have the luxury of picking a starting point and an ending ending point may affect the conclusions you come up with. And in terms of baseball, you know, sort of one of the things we think about is that rather than saying this guy, you'll see your TV broadcast all the time saying, like, this guy is, you know, second in the league and walks from May 2nd to June 14th. And it's like, well, hey, that's great, but... Whatever, <laughs> um, you see that kind of stuff. Yeah, I see it a lot in the ballpark at Fenway. The Red Sox, for some reason, do this kind of thing on a scoreboard all the time, and it drives me batty. Anyway, that's a side side note. But um, you know, sort of the standard for analysis, and you know, we're as guilty of this as anybody at Baseball HQ. Is you know the way to counteract arbitrary endpoints is to look at you know full seasons as your sort of preferred method of study, um, your, your your preferred uh, time slice, and. But at some point, you know, even those are arbitrary, and that's why I went into this sort of five halves analysis because, uh, you know, sort of the initial take I did on Herrera showed his skills against, you know, just against the three full seasons, 2015, 2016, and now 2017 to date. Uh, but if you slice those three seasons into. Five half seasons, you sort of get a very different picture of you know what the shape of his what it looks like skills growth is in the full season. You can really see that it's like a you know it's a spike in a half season that then you know evaporated as quickly as it came. So if you're trying to figure out what's a you know what's a trend line, what's a skill he's established, what's something that you know is showing a growth, and where what one in another area is a random spike, then you know moving around the endpoints is a way to uh, you know sort of. Uh, you know, all, all, all of these endpoints are arbitrary but the more you look at them you, you sort of get to see different shapes in the curve
0: and when you looked at it, it it looked like his first halves tended to be poor and his second halves tended to be a little better and it still seems subject to a, to the problem of arbitrary endpoints in that you're saying okay instead of April 1st to you know September 30th we're going to say it's from July 1st to to uh, June 30th. There's still arbitrary endpoints though
4: they are and the thing that i was really trying to get out with those half season analyses is if you're trying to compare what he's done this year to what he did in 2015 and 2016 when he was a much more valuable player to us in the fantasy world basically the thing i was highlighting was that he really wasn't that good in the second half of last year either so we're at the point where you know, we're now going on more than a full calendar year where you sort of established a new level of performance and that full level that new level of performance is quite different and a lot less exciting than it was for that, the previous calendar year, that sort of July 2015 to July 2016. And they are while they are arbitrary endpoints, we also know that there are you know, as, as you frequently talk about, uh, Todd and you know other guests on the show, there are points that w- you, you know at which these metrics tend to stabilize, and different different metrics stabilize at different rates. But you know when you get to north of a full calendar year, and something like a combined, I'm looking at it right now, you know, 650 at bats in you know since July 1st of last year, you know, it's hard to call any data point in that set as a total fluke. I mean, you might have questions about the sample size or some numbers might still be stabilizing, but that's a that's a denominator that you kind of have to take seriously, at least.
0: I remember doing a story years ago, and this is, I think, even before a Facts and Fluke Spotlight, but I looked at Derek Jeter in a research piece about when batting average stabilizes just to make the point about arbitrary endpoints, and I, I made it up as a visual thing with uh, three or four graph lines Uh, showing the career level, which stabilized and stayed very, very steady at around 305 for a batting average over his career, it dropped off a little bit at the end. But then as you shortened it down, of course, you'd expect to see more volatility. And indeed you did. If you said, okay, here's, here's 10 weeks at a time, there's quite a bit of volatility. Five weeks at a time, there's more volatility still. And over any short run period of time, you have to admit to yourself when you're thinking about this stuff that, the performances at the high and the low still have to be considered normal like the the career level is 305 but in any 10 week run Derek Jeter could hit 425 or 115 and both of those performances are within the range that you'd expect given what we know about him over over those shorter runs and at that point i think it becomes interesting to the fantasy user because some of those volatilities are different for some players than they are for others and if what you're looking for is lightning in a bottle you want the more volatile guy if what you're looking for is reliability you need the guy whose uh, performance level tends to be less volatile even over those shorter runs
4: yeah that's exactly right and that's uh that probably would have been a good thing for me to throw into this chart that I didn't throw in. Would be just the, you know, sort of the sum or the aggregate of what all these half seasons add up to in terms of a, you know, career baseline for Herrera because that's a uh, like you said that's sort of the you the straight line through the curves, right? That's what the, uh, you know, that, that's what it all kind of washes out to, and what you know, we, if you want to know what you expect from him going forward, you know, what he's done, you know, in the entirety of his entirety of his career to date is a is a pretty good baseline for that
0: in the uh, subheading seeking a root cause when you're looking at Herrera and this is as old as baseball itself i'm sure he just swings too much and he doesn't swing at the right pitches
4: yeah and it's i will have a narrative around it and you know that's not something we do a lot of here at hq we're you know we're data focused we're metric centric we're trying you know we're Trying to have the numbers tell us things, not have us, you know, it, come up, come to conclusions and try to find the numbers to back up you know, what we imagine we're seeing with our eyes or you know in our in our head. But you know, I kind of spun that around a little bit and tried to get into Herrera's head a little bit and you know, wove things like the fact that he's been dropped from uh, the leadoff hitter to middle of the order this year and that he just got his big contract this winter. And you know, it was a long grind for him to get to the majors. He was a, a Rule Five pick, a six-year minor league free agent essentially, who you know the Phillies took a chance on, and he you know they cracked the door open for him, and he you know as as the as the' saying goes you know kicked it up kicked it open from there, and you know established himself as a regular and got paid. You know he's you know very wealthy guy now, et cetera, and the Phillies asked him to drop down in the order this year, and he's, you can easily imagine he'd be like, "Hey, you give me thirty million dollars, so I'll do anything you want me to do." Uh, so he goes in there, but yeah, this is a team that doesn't score a ton of runs, and they they they're having a lot of trouble on the offensive side. Not just him, but as we mentioned in that poll, Franco hasn't been that good this year. Cesar Hernandez was out for a while. Tommy Joseph has been sort of been going in fits and starts. so... They overall have a lot of trouble scoring runs, and they paid him and moved him to the middle of the order. And he probably feels like you know he's supposed to do something about that. And he's up there swinging away, trying to drive guys in, and you know that's kind of not the game that got him to the majors to begin with. You know, he kind of you know had a success as a table setter, a leadoff guy, getting on base, slapping the ball around, stealing bases, and. You know, maybe he's a little miscast, or maybe he a little is a little uh, forgetful of uh, you know, what it is that got him here. So maybe it's uh, you know he, the best case scenario was just a little mental adjustment, or you know something that he's got to work on to get back to doing what you know what got him this opportunity in the first place.
0: It sounds like that's something that's kind of on Philadelphia, on the organization, for taking a guy and saying, you know, you've had some success doing this, so we're going to ask you to do something entirely different and putting the onus or the pressure on him to be the person that he's not with dire results and i wonder would a better organization not have done this they say we need a run producer well we either have to trade for one or do something or maybe we'll have to have Odubel herrera slapping the ball around but stealing more bases getting into scoring positions so we're not so reliant on extra base hits there are pathways to, to take a good player and make him more productive as a run producer without moving him down in the order and saying, you're not a home run hitter, you're not even really an extra base hit gatherer, but we're going to ask you to be that anyway, and then you end up with uh, like losing out on both ends. You don't have that good runs table setter at the top because he's now batting third where he's not doing the job.
4: Yeah, I think I think you're very much on the right point there. I was talking to Brent about this a little bit, and Brent, of course, is a local we'll Philly guy who sees Herrera all the time, and his his opinion is that that's basically what happened is that he's a you know on a good team, and you know, stipulating that the Phillies are not at least not yet a good team. Herrera is a nice complimentary piece, but in a situation like this where you're sort of bereft of talent, you know, somebody comes in like Herrera, especially when you found him on a scrap heap and turn him into something, you have the you know, he thinks there's sort of an organizational tendency to look at him and think he can be more than he really is, or that he's really uh, he's a core player on a good team. When in fact, he just looks like a core player because you don't really have any other core players, and you sort of forget what they look like. Um, and he's a you know in a good organization, he'd be a you know as you say, they'd use him differently, they'd play to his strengths, they'd bat him first or second, let him you know run, move the ball around, all those sorts of things, and you'd get the bonus you know twelve home runs for, from him and. You wouldn't fall in the trap of thinking that that meant that he's, you know, a budding five-category, you know, star kind of player. Um, But you know, it seems like maybe the Phillies fell into that trap, or maybe they dropped Herrera down in the order because they had a legitimate reason to do that. In the sense that Cesar Hernandez is a you know better leadoff hitter, higher OBP guy, et cetera. But maybe they just neglected to have the conversation with Herrera about you know we're moving you down in the order, but we don't necessarily want to. Have you stop doing what you're doing or change who you are? We like who you are. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't feel like you got to be, you know, Giancarlo Stanton just because we're batting you third. So, you know, maybe you know, there there might be some of exactly what you're describing going on, either from the Phillies fooling themselves into what Herrera was, or to just not message with him about what they like about him, and even though they gave him a big contract, that they don't see him as something that he's actually not.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking about uh, Ricky Henderson, who was a very good leadoff hitter, very effective run scorer. And in his whole career, I think he batted third or fourth, something like maybe fifty times out of uh, 13,000 career plate appearances. Fifty or sixty of them were batting third and fourth. And on some teams, he might have been the kind of guy who could have justifiably been moved down in the order. He could hit, you know, he could hit, He could. He was a home run hitter in certain circumstances. But you have to be realistic about what you have there. And, and in this particular situation, I don't think that's uh, that's what they did with Odobel Herrera. Now, your conclusion says that if they figure it out, odobel Herrera could be a real valuable fantasy piece. But if they don't, then he's going to be of limited value, I think, going forward. Yeah, it's, it's
4: kind of on him slash on the team to... You know, figure things out. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned that, you know, Brent highlighted for me is that, there, you know, there have been a number of uh, incidents, including one in the last week where Herrera's made some mental mistakes and you know, McCann uh, sat him down a day this week after he didn't run, to, run out a third strike that got dropped by the catcher and could have made it to first base and didn't, you know, those sorts of things. So, you know, he seems like, you know, that if you weave that little bit of evidence around what you see in the metrics about his swing rates and what he's swinging at and stuff. It kind of looks like the classic guy who's, you know, going through some struggles and is wrapped around the axles and just kind of hasn't found his way out of the woods yet. So, um, you know, most of the time that eventually happens, and hopefully Herrera can get back to being what he was that was interesting in terms of, you know, being a batting average and stolen bases kind of source. But, uh, you know, know, anybody who was getting sucked in by the, you know, developing power or the, you know, multi-category value, that, you know he was flashing and for a half season here or there that 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 looks mostly uh, mostly like an illusion at this point.
0: And so I think the thing to watch for Odubel Herrera in the future is watch what the Phillies do insofar as signing free agents or, or developing minor league players. If they figure out some guy who can come up and be that middle-of-the-order run producer or even better, two of them, that could allow them to feel comfortable putting Herrera back in that top-of-the-order type role where he could be way more valuable in future years than he has been this year. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at Baseball HQ. Common Ray, you had a column recently that you called Dueling Emotions in DFS. So what are the emotions and how are they dueling?
4: So, uh, so my first summer reading book was uh, Daniel Barbarisi's uh, book about uh, DraftKings and FanDuel uh, doing with Kings, in which he uh, he did a sort of pretty masterful job of telling the tale of the emergence of the DFS industry and the uh, successes and pitfalls along the way, and also you know kind of fascinating to me, you uh, know also immersed himself in it and sort of got to know the uh, the big players and even you know for a while became a big player himself with. Uh, With some success, and of all things, uh, DFS hockey. But uh, but anyway, it was a fascinating thing that, uh, you know, actually, you know, the reason I wrote the article is because the the book sort of alternately entertained slash enraged slash motivated slash maybe you want to punch something, you know, from chapter to chapter was literally, you know, re- recapping the full drip, drip, drip history of DFS over the last couple of years in you know, the course of a couple of chapters of a book that I read in, you know, a couple of nights sort of got me all enraged about, you know, all the shenanigans that have gone on and all the, particularly the using of full season fantasy as a shield for DFS it you know, really is a full-season player first and foremost just you know enraged me and you know made me feel you know dirty myself for even playing dfs because it's you know attacking the thing i love most which is full-season fantasy but then by the same token you know those experiences that barbara had as a player also reminded me of you know how fun this can be and that dfs at its core even though you know for all the marketing problems and gambling uh... Um, uh, you know, parallels and all those sorts of things is, you know, can be a fun game. And I've seen that side of it too. So it was really, uh, a well done book as far as, you know, as uh, I was concerned from the, uh, you know, the pros and cons and, you know, looking, turning DFS around and looking at it from, you know, multiple different lenses sort of gave the, you know, the regulatory, the, uh, the arrogance of the companies, the, and yet the fact that they've got a, you know, at the core, they've got a pretty cool product too. So it's, uh, you know, it, it was one of those things that uh, you moved me in a bunch of ways I didn't expect, as the uh, as a reviewer might say.
0: So, what is the status of that merger? Is it f- for sure a a not going to happen type thing?
4: Yeah, it, they had announced uh, it was sometime last fall or something like that. That, that DraftKings and FanDuel announced they're going to merge, and they officially dissolved the attempted merger uh just a couple of weeks ago, uh right right around right, 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 the All Star break, I think, where they, they they announced that they will be moving forward officially as two separate companies. Uh and my overall take on that was Barbarese, uh, in in the book sort of you know, I don't want to say he was giving it less than a fair shake because he wasn't he was he was critical of the uh, of the industry players where appropriate but uh, a lot of times you know he would present the excuse presented by the industry of oh you know that happened because we're just growing so fast we we didn't quite keep up on the regular regulatory aspect of it or the controls on the data or that sort of thing and it was a lot of yeah, mostly innocent. You know, not malicious mistakes. Like, oh, you know, if we had thought it, we we should have thought of that, but we didn't. It was just an oversight, or you know, we were just we were going too fast, doing too many things at once, that sort of thing. Um, as opposed to something more sinister in a lot of cases. But to me, the merger was sort of the counter example of that because I mean. As I say in the article, I am not a lawyer and don't pretend to be, but you know even as a you know, casual observer, you know one of the core principles of u you know, s government regulation on these things is that you know they have laws in place specifically to present, prevent the you know creation of monopolies, and I don't see how you could reasonably argue that draftkings and FanDuel merging would create something other than a monopoly I, don't, I just never understood from the day they announced the merger last year how they were going to Get around the regulatory hurdle, and how they were going to argue that this wasn't a monopoly. There's no meaningful third or fourth or fifth player in the industry that could be, you know, even bootstrapped to compete with them. So I I just never understood it. And when they, you know, after trying for the better part of a year to create a merger out of it, and then walking away from it, you know, in no small part because of those concerns, it just made me, you know, question all of their excuses for. The other problems they had along the way, because they couldn't, there was no argument to be made that they were, you know, unaware that they were going to, you know, face monopoly scrutiny. I knew they were going to face monopoly scrutiny for crying out loud. I don't know how they thought they were going to get around it, and it just brought me back to the idea that it was arrogance and just thinking they were above the law, or it didn't apply to them, or whatever. And just seems like yet another example of them, you know, creating a self-inflicted wound.
0: I talked about this with some other people and uh, and it came up in the subscriber forums as well at BaseballHQ.com. And this discussion turned to Sirius and XM Radio, which were competing satellite radio providers who somehow managed to merge and control basically 100% of the satellite radio market, which would have seemed to be a fairly obvious violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act in much the same way that you described the 99% control of DFS that DraftKings FanDuel would have combined to control. But the argument that those radio companies made was, we're not in the satellite radio business, we're in the radio business. And therefore, we're not just competing with each other, but we're competing with online uh, service providers like Spotify. We're competing with regular terrestrial radio stations who still broadcast signals and are heard in cars and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And the government bought it from that point of view. Was there an angle that these two drafting companies, uh, DFS companies could have made that said, we're not in the daily fantasy business. We're in basically the sports wagering business and there's lots of competition. Yeah,
4: maybe they could have, and maybe, maybe, but that's kind of the third rail they've been running running around all along. Is you know the, a- in the book, there's a lot of discussion about the, the, the gambling parallels and, you know, how sort of against all evidence or against all common sense, they would hide behind legalities and say, you yeah, know, we're not a gambling site. We're not a sports betting site. You know, those regulations don't apply to us. So, you know, having staked out that position for multiple years, they couldn't just turn around and, you know, tell, tell the regulators we're in the sports betting business. They been saying for saying since inception they weren't. So, I mean, maybe that would have been a way around the regulation, but they would have, I think they would have been called out for talking out of both sides of their mouth. Now, I don't know if they could have Made an argument that, like, we're not in the daily fantasy business; we're in the fantasy business, and you know, rolled themselves up against you know all the other you know game providers, ESPN and Yahoo and OnRoto and RT Sports and um, you know all the rest down the line. Maybe maybe that's an argument they could have made, or maybe they f- that's the argument a year ago they thought they were going to make, and they turned it turned out it didn't hold water with the regulators. I. I don't know what the specifics were of the decision-making or how many paths they tried to get around this and it didn't work, but you know, just, just from a, the outsider's perspective, it looked to me like I could never figure out why they were going down that road to begin with.
0: I know a lot of people who listen to these podcasts that are supposed to be about fantasy baseball kind of roll their eyeballs and say, I don't want to hear about the business of sports because there's other places you can hear it, and I understand that. I do think it's interesting enough to merit some discussion. If if you're out there and you don't and you do like listening to stuff about the business of sports, I can recommend the uh, podcast by Andrew Brandt. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Ray, it's called "The Business of Sports" with Andrew Brandt. He's a former front office guy in the Green Bay Packers organization, and he has a lot of uh, a lot of connections in the business of sports. It's pretty interesting. Do you still play DFS?
4: I do um, here and there, and by here and there, I guess I mean most days. Um, you know, I, it's one of those things where. Um, I thought, as as people have have expressed, people who are very good at DFS have expressed from the beginning of time. Sort of the more time you have to play it, and the more time you can put into your lineups, you're, the better you're going to do. And I, that, despite hearing that any number of times, it seems like I have not learned that lesson. So I can't tell you how many times I'm firing a lineup off at six o'clock on you know ten minutes of work before. Uh, the night's play begins just because I had 10 minutes and wanted to do it, and then find out that you know I really didn't make a good lineup. So, you know, I continue lighting money money on fire in the DFS world. Yes. <laughs>
0: and before i let you go ray uh i follow you on twitter of course at ray hq and uh it's a terrific twitter feed Uh, you said on it recently within the last week or so you thought that jonathan vr of milwaukee was having a bad year because last year he was deliberately chasing stats on a bad team and this year because the team is good he can't do that anymore could you explain exactly what you meant by that
4: yeah i was a i was an owner of vr last year and you know uh won a couple of leagues thanks to his contribution in no small part. So I was pretty intimately familiar with his performance last year. And there was this funny little dynamic between him and Craig Council, especially in the second half where VR absolutely went nuts. Um, I think he stole 40 out of his 60 bases in the second half or something like that. Um, But he was, you know, he was running a ridiculous amount of time he got on base, and the Brewers were in last place, so probably nobody cared. But he was also, um, you know, running afoul of counsel for uh, mental mistakes or, you know, running in bad situations or getting caught at the wrong time or stuff like that. And it seemed like he was always sort of on the razor's edge of. Um, Counsel's patience, but you know, sort of won the argument because he was having a good year on a bad team, and they couldn't really bench him because he was being so productive. And yet this year, you know, he's obviously struggling a lot more. He hasn't been nearly as productive. And hey, the Brewers are good, uh, so seems like you know council would have more of the upper hand in that uh side by side in, in that sort sort of arm wrestling match of you know okay last year you you know i i I sort of looked the other way a little more and let you go chase your stats. things were going well for you, and I overlooked the uh the mental errors, the defensive lapses, whatever else it was, but this year, hey you know we 're in the race, and that's got to come first, so either you do it my way or you, uh, you, know, you pay attention to the signs and whatever else it is. And uh, so, so the, the root question on that Twitter feed was whether I thought VR was a uh, good second-half rebound candidate. And while I thought his performance would get better, I, I just didn't think that the Avenue was there for the same, you know, sort of second-half explosion of stats just because of the, uh, the team context this year.
0: I've, I've uh, thought about this since I read the tweet a little while ago. And what I'm theorizing is, was his... Occasional defensive laps, or were they more than occasional? Enough to offset the fact that he was producing a hell of a lot of good for that Milwaukee team last year, and and by reining him in, you might actually be hurting the club, even if your main focus is to get control over your player. Sometimes controlling a player is not detrimental; is detrimental to the good of the of the overall unit.
4: Yeah, it's uh, you know, Council probably had somewhat different priorities last year than this year. You know, he looked like he was vr uh, you know, a year ago this time was you know what like a you know a budding star that they had uh brought off the scrap heap and a building block of their next contending team, which we thought might be a couple of years out or he might have been something that you know they were going to flip for you know other prospects that sort of thing, and you know maybe it made sense for council to you know sort of indulge the kid a little bit and let him build up what it looked like a gaudy resume and let uh you know let the let, let his management decide how they wanted to, uh, you know, deal with that asset going forward. But now, you know, council's got, you know, a different set of responsibilities trying to get into, uh, you know, after a good start this year, you know, they are taking out a little bit of water lately, but they're at least trying to get into the wild-card game, and, you know, that's got to be his, uh, you know, even if it's a little bit of a surprise to them this year, that's obviously got to be his first priority, and they've got other options with Garcia and Sogard and Hernan Perez and all of that. So he's also got, you know, better places he can turn to other than VR that he didn't really have last year.
0: Somebody brought up that whole situation a few weeks ago on the show, and I thought to myself, if Eric Sogard is the guy standing between you and playing, uh, that's not a good situation for you or for the team. Uh, But of course, Sogard has played much better in Milwaukee this year than we've ever seen before in the past. Uh, It's an interesting set of circumstances. It will certainly be fun to watch for the rest of this year and on into the future. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out this week. I do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Tell our listeners where they can keep track of Ray Murphy.
4: Uh, You can find me in the uh, general manager's office at uh, Baseball HQ, occasionally in the speculator column. I hopefully will be appearing there next week sometime after the trading deadline. Uh, You mentioned my Twitter feed at Ray HQ. And most importantly, you can see me in person at First Pitch Arizona this November. Uh, I think we're going to see you too, right, Patrick?
0: That's the plan.
4: Excellent. Yeah, it's uh, registrations open now at baseballhq.com, and we are in the process of building out the speaker list and the program. We'll have some pretty cool announcements about that over the coming weeks. I know the uh, the Arizona Fall League schedule drops, I think, on Monday, uh, and I've, I've actually seen a sneak preview of it. So uh, we've got a good sk- schedule of uh, games and ballparks, and the Fall Stars game on tap for our weekend, which is uh, November second through fifth. Out in Phoenix, we'll be at the double tree our sort of uh, ancestral home for this event, and it's uh, it's a great weekend of uh, you know fantasy baseball analysis and watching baseball games and checking out prospects. So last year we saw uh, who we see, we saw Cody Bellinger and we saw a whole bunch of other guys that are uh, in the majors now, right, Patrick?
0: Yes, and I can remember over the years seeing Aaron Judge, I saw one year, uh, this uh, this I'll never forget, sitting at a ballpark and the uh, third and fourth hitters were standing there waiting for the inning to start, and they were Bryce Harper and Mike Trout.
4: That's right. That's right. That was. That's sort of one of my touchstone memories too. And the, uh, you know, the guys who have been going for even longer than you and I will, uh, you know, I'll always like to cite the example of some third baseman named Pujols who was whitening uh, things up for the Cardinals out there that nobody that are, had ever heard of the year before he burst on the scene. So, you yeah, know, Bellinger is a great example this year. That's uh, one of the bigger hits we've had in recent years. Uh, Bellinger and uh, Brad Zimmer was out there last year, and some other. Uh, some of the other guys who are making an impact this year. It's always, uh, you know, we're a couple of weeks away from getting the actual rosters announced, but it's always sort of a who's who of the top fifty, top one hundred prospects. So uh, we're uh, we're getting excited for that. We're putting the program together, and we'll have more announcements at Baseball HQ about speakers and guests and panels and all those sorts of things. But uh, we definitely would recommend you joining us if you can get yourself to Phoenix for uh, a weekend in November.
0: Well said, Ray. Well said. Uh, thanks very much for helping us out, and we'll talk to you again sometime before the season's over, I'm sure. Excellent. Thanks, Patrick. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Please stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. Now, you know, I bet you're curious what great stuff you're going to find this week at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. The problem is, if I listed everything, this podcast would be five hours long. And since I wouldn't get any money for the added length, I'll just mention a few things that caught my eye this week. In playing time tomorrow, Brian Slack looks at the National League West, including the Padres' bullpen, the Rockies' rotation, the Dodgers' response to Clayton Kershaw's injury, and more. In the Market Pulse, Joseph Pitleski looks at Paul Blackburn, T.J. Rivera, Brent Suter, and other top ads and drops. And in the Speculator column, Brent Hershey muses on the future's game. It's all on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. <laughs> Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with an updated profile of the Mets shortstop prospect Ahmed Rosario is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon.
5: The New York Mets' Ahmed Rosario continues to prove he's one of the best hitters in baseball and has been dominant at AAA Las Vegas this year. The Mets' top prospect missed a week of action with a stomach flu, but hasn't missed a beat since his return, hitting 4.42 over his last 10 games and running his season-best hitting streak to 17 games. The Mets signed the Dominican shortstop in 2012 for the hefty price tag of $1.75 million, but have to be thrilled with their investment at this point. The 21-year-old Rosario has developed into the top prospect in the National League. He has plus tools across the board and should develop at least average or maybe even above average power once he fills out his 6'2", 180-pound frame. Rosario runs well and is a plus defender with true shortstop actions. On the year, Rosario is hitting .334 with a .371 on-base percentage and a .445 slugging percentage. He has 18 doubles, 7 triples, 7 home runs, and 17 stolen bases and 377 at-bats at AAA. If the Mets are able to deal as Drupal Cabrera at the trade deadline, it could create an opening for Rosario to make his Major League debut, and fantasy owners should be ready to make an aggressive fab bid on this dynamic prospect. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon.
0: Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at how the trade deadline action affects San Diego's bullpen and Arizona's batting order. And here to tell you about it, BaseballHQ.com analyst, Ryan Bloomfield.
6: San Diego traded away their closer in Brandon Mauer earlier this week, and all indications are that Brad Hand will step in, and deservedly so as Hand sports a 208 ERA and a sub-1 whip on the season. However, as Brian Slack noted in Friday's Playing Time Tomorrow column on the NL West, Hand himself makes for an ideal trade chip for the rebuilding San Diego Padres. Brian highlighted Phil Maton in the San Diego pen as the Padres' next logical replacement behind hand. Mayton owns the team's second highest leverage index, which is a usage metric that we use to see which relievers are being used in the highest leverage game situations. mayton has got the skills too. His 305 expected ERA actually outpaces his 338 surface mark, and the skill set's driven by a nasty 15% swinging strike rate and a 9.5 strikeout to walk ratio. mayton has been San Diego's closer in the minor league ranks coming up, so the club seems to be grooming him for the long-term role. And over in the desert, a maybe less than headline ripple of the J.D. Martinez trade is how it's affecting Arizona's batting order. David Peralta has moved up to leadoff over the team's last few games, which could mean an increase in his rest-of-season value in two ways. First and most obvious is the bump in plate appearances at the top of the lineup. And second, we could see a nice little bump from David Peralta and Sola Bases atop an unhappy Diamondbacks lineup. Peralta's deserved the promotion to lead off this season after an injury play 2016 campaign. He's hitting 316 with 10 homers and 6 steals, and best of all, it's fully backed by the skills. Peralta's plate skills have been excellent with an 84% contact rate and a 292 expected batting average, and also his fourth straight triple-digit speed rating suggests that Peralta could put the green light to good use if he starts running more with Arizona. Peralta makes for an excellent stretch run trade target. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com.
0: Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst and the social media director at BaseballHQ.com and is our playing time commentator here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers, Arizona second baseman Kevin Medrano and starting pitcher Anthony Banda, and here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. At this time of year, with Monday's trade deadline rapidly
7: approaching, most would agree that it's important to have a pair of Aces. But in this case, we're talking about a pair of Reno Aces. In this week's edition, frequent flyers will profile two Redo Aces, the Arizona Diamondbacks' AAA affiliate. Beginning with 27-year-old Kevin Madrano, who has batted 326 in 2017 through two levels of the minors. More importantly, Kevin Madrano has displayed an 84% contact rate, which measures his ability to get wood on the ball, and at 8% walk rate, which measures his patience. Of course, assuming that 300 hitters most often come from a group with a minimum 86% contact rate and an 11% walk rate, it's easy to see that a slight improvement in Kevin Bedrano's 84% contact rate and 8% walk rate may translate to a 300 average at the big league level according to BaseballHQ.com benchmarks. Indeed, Kevin Madrano's 299 career average of the minors may support this theory. But at age twenty seven, Kevin Madrano is probably not considered to be a hot prospect by most. That's why Kevin Madrano, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. Then again, Arizona Diamondback's second baseman, Brandon Drury and Daniel DeKelso, are only betting a combined two sixty-four in 2017. In other words, maybe Kevin Madrano could find value in NL only Leagues as a late-season call-up for the Diamondbacks. Another ace who could possibly make a late-season appearance or two for the Arizona Diamondbacks is 23-year-old left-hander Anthony Bonda, who just made his Major League debut on July 22nd versus the Washington Nationals. Despite surrendering a two out moonshot to Bryce Harper in the first inning, Anthony Bondick kept his composure and pitched four scoreless innings against a powerful Nationals lineup before allowing three earned runs in the sixth. Maybe it was just a spot start with Tywon Walker on paternity leave, but maybe it's a sign of good things to come. According to our own Jeremy Deloney in the July 23rd edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com, Anthony Banda's stock has gone up in the past two years as his velocity has increased as curveball has improved to near plus status. However, Jeremy does also point out that Anthony Banda has struggled a bit with right-handed hitters in 2017, as control has been far too inconsistent. Indeed, Anthony Banda has produced a control rate of 3.7 walks per game, well above the 2.8 walks per game or less benchmark that we use at BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. But, according to Jeremy, regardless of some struggles, there's enough here to keep them on your radar. Good advice. In fact, maybe that advice applies to both Kevin Madrado and Anthony Bonda, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our frequent flyers commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now, our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets for you to start. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets to sit. Between the ones, we call those the wild cards. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. Here with a look at James Paxton, Jacob DeGrom, and other pitchers for this weekend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. Greg Fishwick.
1: There's not one pitcher with a recommended start matchup rating for this final weekend in July. Of the 32 wild cards, only six are on the positive side of zero. Among them, Cleveland's Corey Kluber has an 0-21 for his Saturday start against the White Sox in Chicago. Over his past 10 starts, Kluber has eight PQS dominant outings. There's little reason to fear the effects of his having missed his last start with a stiff neck. The remaining 28 recommended sit matchup ratings suggest several opportunities to stack hitters this weekend. Just looking at matchups in which a team's starters both have bad matchup ratings, the five teams facing those pitchers should all tee off at home. So in the American League, load your lineups with Texas Rangers, Toronto Blue Jays, and Minnesota Twins. And in the National League, with Washington Nationals and Los Angeles Dodgers. Our marquee matchup features Seattle lefty James Paxton, who has a matchup rating of 038 for his home start on Sunday. Paxton's interleague-bound opponent is Mets right-hander Seth Lugo. Lugo has a matchup rating of minus 126. Marquee matchup man Paxton has PQS dominant starts in four straight outings and five of his past six. His PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio this season is 59% dominant to 18% disaster. On July 8, BaseballHQ.com Stephen Nickran noted, quote, James Paxton has been one of the American League's best starting pitchers during the past 12 months, both on the surface, 347 ERA, 119 whip, and beneath it, 8.9 strikeouts per nine dominance, 2.2 walks per nine control, 46% ground ball rate, 123 BPV. And those skills were backed by a 12% swinging strike rate, 64% first pitch strike rate, and 35% ball ratio. He's a legit rotation anchor if he could stay healthy, unquote. Since last June, Paxton has averaged 5 starts per month and a monthly BPV of 138. In the USA today power rankings of July 24, the Mariners are ranked 17th and the Mets 23rd. Both clubs are under 500. New York has the advantage of being 9 games over 500 against teams under 500, and Seattle has the advantage of being 4 games over 500 at home. But the M's score and allow 4.7 runs per game, while the Mets score about the same but allow almost half a run more per game give the edge to the Mariners, and go with our marquee matchup man for this weekend, Seattle's James Paxton. For our Saturday surprise, we need look no further than our marquee matchup in Seattle between the Mariners and the New York Mets. It's no surprise that the Mariners' Giovanni Gallardo has a matchup rating of minus 174, but what's with Jacob deGrom's matchup rating of minus 006? His surface stats on the road are to blame. Yet on June 24, baseballhq.com Steven Nickran put to rest the idea that DeGrom is less effective away from home, pointing out that DeGrom's over 5 road DRA belied his elite skills on the road at the time, including a BPV of 145. DeGrom had been victimized away from Citi Field by a hit rate of 37% and a home run per fly ball rate of 21%. Overall, DeGrom now has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 50% dominant to 15% disaster. In his past seven outings, DeGrom has five PQS-dominant efforts. He's answered the bell for every one of his scheduled 20 starts, striking out 152 in 134 innings pitched for a career-best dominance rate of 10.2 strikeouts per nine on a career-best swinging strike rate of 14%. He's also putting up a career-best batter's face per game of 27.2. DeGrom's BPV of 131 is a career second-best, as is his whip, of 116 and his mathematically correct 5x5 value of $25. So Saturday's surprise Jake DeGrom deserves more than a wildcard matchup rating this Saturday. He deserves to start. Check our site for updated matchup information every morning. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, pop quiz. As we wait around our telegraphs and cat's whisker radios for news from the Major League Baseball trade marketplace, let's have some fun with the first annual Master Notes quiz. Please note, this will be a lot more fun for you than it was for me. And even at that, it's going to be no keg party. Uh, Unless you want to make it one. I'm in. Private message me on Twitter. So I was compiling all the HQ final stats from 2002 to 2016 for research purposes when I thought it would be interesting, and possibly master notes fodder, to see which players had the best and worst seasons and total value. That's the basis of this quiz. So remember, when you're mulling the total value questions, some of the players in the early 2000s were on the downslopes of their careers, some of the players in the later part of the period are just starting out. Some questions have hints, most of which are pretty unhelpful. The answers are given after each question. Don't listen ahead and don't send your finished quiz in for any kind of credit. We begin with the batters. Remember, all dollar values are from the BaseballHQ.com archives, and the values were lovingly crafted by 43 bearded gnomes using electrically powered abacuses. In other words, don't grouse about the values. Each answer will be given after the question. There'll be three seconds of silence. You can pause the podcast there, write down your answers, and remember, please don't send them in to us. Question one, there have been 22 seasons in which hitters amassed $40 or more of fantasy value. Twelve of those seasons were by six hitters who made the $40 plus list twice each. How many of these six hitters can you name? And here's your first hint. Five of the six hitters are currently active. Answer number one: The six multi-$40 hitters are Jose Altuve (2014 and 16, probably 2017 as well), Ryan Braun in 2011 and 12, Miguel Cabrera in 2012 and 13, Albert Pujols. You have to go back to 2003 and 5, Mike Trout in 2012 and 13, and the inactive player, A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez in 2005 and 2007. Question two. This hitter had an injury-plagued minus $11 season in 2010, then bounced back to lead fantasy baseball the next year with a $46 campaign. Who was he? Answer number two. Jacoby Ellsbury had just 78 at-bats in 2010 for the Red Sox, earning minus $11. In 2011, he led baseball with that 32 homer, 105 RBIs, 39 stolen bases, 119 runs, and a 321 batting average, earning $46. In that one season with the Red Sox, he earned more than he earned later in his first three seasons with the Yankees. Question 3. Which hitter had the most valuable single season in the entire 2002-16 period? In 2011, Matt Kemp, then of Los Angeles, piled up a $49 season with 39 homers, 126 RBIs, 40 stolen bases, 115 runs scored, and a three hundred twenty four batting average. Here's something interesting about Kemp's consistency. He had exactly 602 at bats in 2008, 2009, and 2010. Then in 2010 and that awesome 2011, he had exactly 606 at bats. Question 4. Which $40 hitter did the deed with the fewest home runs? Answer number four, the fewest home runs in a $40 season were by Jose Altuve, who had just seven home runs in 2014. Question five, who had a $40 season with the most home runs? Answer number five, in 2007 with 54 home runs in a $40 season, Alex Rodriguez. Question number six, who had a $40 season with the fewest stolen bases? The fewest stolen bases in a $40 season. Three in 2013 by the notoriously lead-footed Miguel Cabrera. Question number seven. Who had the most stolen bases in a $40 season? Answer number seven. No surprise here. Jose Altuve again. In that same 2014 season with just seven homers, he had 56 stolen bases. This just in. Jose Altuve, he's really good. Question number eight. What was the most unlikely fantasy scoring stat in Curtis Granderson's $36 season in 2011? Answer number eight. Curtis Granderson's 41 homers, 119 RBIs, 25 bags, and 136 runs in the counting stats made up for his batting average of just .262. Question nine. Which hitter had the most seasons of $30 or more? Answer number nine. Albert Pujols had eight different seasons of $30 or more, one more than Miggy Cabrera's seven. A-Rod, Mike Trout, and Carl Crawford had five each. Question 10. The worst individual season for hitters with at least 200 at-bats was in 2010 by a very highly touted prospect who disappointed fantasy owners with year after year of negative value production through four seasons. Who was he? You might remember Brandon Wood was a hot commodity in leagues with farm drafts, a power hitter in the Angels organization. He struck out way too often, barely topping 70% contact at his best and hitting two hundred sixteen at his peak. In that 2010 disaster season, he had four home runs, 14 RBIs, one stolen base and 26 runs and topped it off with a .146 batting average in 226 at at-bats. The resulting $16 value has never been... Well, bottomed. Question 11. It's easier for a part-time player to put together a terrible offensive season because the limited at-bats limits his counting stats. But one hitter in the period provided a fantasy season value of $0 in more than 500 at-bats. Who was he? The most dreadful season by a full-time hitter just last year by perennial fantasy disappointment Jason Hayward of the Cubs. Seven home runs, 49 RBIs, 11 stolen bases, and 61 runs with a .230 batting average in 530 at at-bats. That's good, if that's the word, for a $0 value. Question 12. Given what we already know about Pujols, Miggy, and Arod's many years of top production, it's no surprise they are also 1-2-3 in total dollar value production in the 2002-16 period. $444 for Pujols, $392 for Miggy, and $312 for A-Rod. But who's 4th and 5th on the overall total list? And the only two other hitters who are over $300 in total value. And here's another hint. Both of their surnames contain the letter Z. Those other $300 total value hitters, David Ortiz at $308 in 4th place and Ichiro Suzuki at $306 in 5th. Question 13. Middle infielders Eric Ibar, Howie Kendrick, Ian Kinsler, Dustin Pedroia, Miguel Tejada, and Troy Tulowitzki all played 11 seasons in the period. They are in alphabetical order there, but put them in order of their total dollar value production, from highest to lowest. This one might surprise you, those middle infielders in descending order. Did you have Dustin Pedroia first? Nah Ian Kinsler tops the list at two hundred and eleven dollars. Pedroya is next at one hundred sixty nine, Tahada at one hundred sixty seven, Tulowitzki at one hundred forty four, Kendrick at one hundred four, and Ibar bringing up the rear at fifty eight dollars. Question fourteen. Jose Abreu, Mookie Betts, and George Springer all have three seasons during the period. Rank them from high to low in total production. Answer number 14, those three-season stars in descending order of total value, Abreu first at $72, then Betts at 66 and Springer at 35 I don't know how well you did. Please, again, don't send in your answers or anything like that. Now we move on to the pitchers and question 15. Quick, we saw 22 $40 seasons by hitters, over or under 22 seasons for pitchers. Take the under. Just nine $40 seasons have been amassed by pitchers in the 2002-16 period. Question 16. Clayton Kershaw has three seasons of $40 or more. Only one other pitcher has more than one. Who is he? Answer number 16. Randy Johnson had two seasons of $40 or more. A $44 campaign in 2002 and again in 2004. Question 17. Besides Kershaw, which three active pitchers have at least one $40-plus season? Answer 17. The three other active pitchers with $40 seasons are Jake Arrieta, $46 in 2015, Zach Greinke, $44 in 2015, and Justin Verlander, $42 in 2011. Question 18. Which reliever has the top single-season value? Answer 18. The best single-relief season? Eric Gagné of Los Angeles Dodgers had a $33 season in 2003. 55 saves, a 164 ERA, an 069 whip, and 137 strikeouts. Question 19. Kershaw has six seasons of $30 or more. Who has the next most? Answer 19. Roy Halladay had four $30-plus seasons with a $36 in 2010 his best. Question 20. Like Pujols and Cabrera, it's no surprise that Kershaw and Halladay topped the total value race at $264 and $223 respectively. The pitchers in third and fourth are the only other two pitchers over $200 in total value. One is still active, the other is not. Who are they? Answer number 20. The other two pitchers with more than $200 in total value are the now-retired Johan Santana at $214 and still-kicking King Felix Hernandez at 206 Question 21. Of the top 20 pitchers in the total value table, five are relievers. Take a crack at naming them. Hint, only one is active. Answer 21. The five relievers in the top 20 total value start with Mariano Rivera at $187, then Joe Nathan at $152, Francisco Rodriguez, the still active member at $145, followed by Jonathan Papelbon at $139, and Billy Wagner, remember him, at $131. Question 22. Which of these pitchers had the best single season? Chris Carpenter, Roger Clemens, Corey Kluber, Mark Pryor, or Javier Vazquez? Answer 22. It's a trick question. All of these pitchers had peak single-season value of $31. Question 23. Unlike hitters, it's common for pitchers to have awful seasons when they have a lot of playing time. Three pitchers had negative-value seasons in 200 or more innings. John Lester is one. He was minus $9 in 2012, and Mark Burely is another at minus $5 in 2013. Who's the third? Answer twenty three Tanyon Sturts was a minus fifteen dollar disaster in two thousand two for Tampa, going four and eighteen with a five hundred eighteen ERA, a one hundred sixty one whip, and only one hundred and thirty seven strikeouts in those two hundred twenty-four innings. Question twenty four. Among all pitcher seasons of 170 or more innings, what I'll call full time starters, three pitchers had single seasons of minus twenty five dollars or worse. The worst of all was Ricky Romero, a minus $29 catastrophe in 2012, and the third worst was by Joe Saunders, a minus $25 in 2013, which still active pitcher had the second worst single season. Answer 24. The second worst single season for starting pitchers of 170 or more innings was by Edenson Volquez, currently on the Miami DL. He went 9-12 and with the Dodgers, supplying a 571-159 line with only 142 strikeouts in 170 in a third innings in 2013. That season, minus $27. Question 25. Among their lowest season, who had the worst? Joe Blanton? Edwin Jackson? Or Barry Zito? Answer 25. Another trick question. All three had their worst seasons of minus $30. Blanton and Zito in 2013, Edwin Jackson in 2014. Question 26. Among the recently traded Trevor Cahill, Fausto Carmona, Jay Happ, Ricky Nolasco, and Annabel Sanchez, all mid-range pitchers whose best seasons were between $18 and $22, who had the best season? And it's not a trick question this time. Answer 26. The best mid-range season was by Foster Carmona, who earned $22 in 2007. The rest, Annabelle Sanchez at $21 in 2013, Ricky Nalasco $20 in 2008, Cahill at $19 in 2010, and j Happ at $18 last year. Question 27. The best single season. In value, James Shields or Mariano Rivera? Answer 27. Shields' best year was better than Rivera's best year. Shields had a $28 campaign in 2011, while Rivera's best was $26 in 2008. Question 28. Worst single season. James Shields or John Lackey? Answer 28. Lackey's worst season was even worse than Shields. Lackey had a minus $23 campaign in 2011. Shields' worst was minus $18 last year. This ends our special broadcast of the Emergency Master Notes quiz system. If this had been a real emergency, you would have been given a real column, along with a coupon redeemable at the nearest ballpark for two field-level tickets, two hot dogs, and one beer, or at the nearest car lot for a new domestic four-door sedan, whichever is cheaper. If you think you've spotted an error, take my word for it. You're probably right. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com you can get Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 30 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray's always a terrific guest here at Baseball HQ Radio, a great general manager for the website, and an all-around good guy. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute Analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time Commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers Commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher matchups Analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes Commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Get them to give us a listen, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. It all helps us keep the podcast going thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.
1: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com
4: homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.